0: I, I forgot I even had that in my pack. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> a sense of the spoiler, man. Uh, if Joe's like my ear, I'd, I'd probably conquer my forehead. Hey, everybody. Jerry here with an exclusive offer for Kefaru cast listeners. If you head on over to SheepfeetOutdoors.com, enter in the code KEFARU20 at checkout, and you can save yourself 20% off. Next purchase. Again, that is Kefaru, the number two, followed by the number zero at sheepfeedoutdoors.com. Save yourself twenty percent. Now here's Aaron with the podcast. Uh, All right, everybody. I uh am still at the Snyder World Headquarters, which is my house and my office, uh my wife's office, uh, because we haven't got the shop open yet. But uh I um I've got a guy on that we have had on recently. I usually don't have podcasts with guys back-to-back like this, but I, I got inundated with questions after the first one as well as a uh, – a lot of people wanted more knowledge in shooting the shit and uh, comical value. So I got Tim Gillingham back on. Tim, what's cracking?
1: Uh oh usually my shoulders every time i struggle <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh pretty much everybody knows who tim gillingham is he's a very accomplished uh tournament archer hunter and uh has tweaked and torqued and just about i'd say more than anyone else in the uh the archery world so uh tim after the last podcast one of the uh questions i had had a bunch of guys were asking me about um string material and so I was asking you you're you generally one of the you know the, the people that I will call when I have like ah, I'm not really sure myself and then that you brought up that your your bow string company you partnered with so talk a little bit about your string company and as well as um, the difference in string materials where you see a difference where what string you might want to use for hunting material and you know strand count there's a bunch of shit involved in that
1: well, I mean there's a lot of I say there's a lot of guys out there that build good quality strings. The problem lies is when, you know, guys start a company and they they get too big and get too many of these low margin dealer orders. And then the bow companies hit them up for orders. And all of a sudden they're doing volume work over, over custom work. And you're really only as good as the guy building the string. You know, how much work, how much effort, how much, uh, diligence he's going to put into, you know, building a quality string. It's like, it's like anything, you know, you can go to, you can buy a certain level of accuracy, you know, and then you have to build the rest of it, you know, if you don't, you know, and that's, that's pretty much with everything. Um, as far as materials go, um, I have paid my dues, I guess. I remember when different materials come out and we were hit up to use them, you know, I think 8195 was one of the worst. And I was shooting for this guy and I was supposed to be shooting for Brownell uh, at the time. And, and uh, you know, it's 100% veteran string, which I highly don't recommend. And I found out later on he was building my stuff out of 8195 and not telling me. And we don't me and two or three other guys were up at Field Nationals in Darrington, Washington every morning or every night we'd make sure our bows were dialed and every morning we'd walk back out there at eighty yards we'd be all hitting underneath the dot. And by noon we'd be back in the middle. And this is something that was almost imperceivable in you know, we'd just take the time to mark your, you know, mark your cams on the limbs where they cross just to make sure something hadn't moved. And I think what was happening, you just got a, you know, an imperceivable, uh, knocking point shift due to the temperature change. Um, there's also, you know, there's also, you know, if you have a long riser on a boat, um, there's also inherent changes in about any material, especially metals. You know with, you know, with the heat expansion. I remember working for the railroad and watching a quarter-inch or a quarter-mile section of rail move, you know, 8 or 10 or 12 inches when you're heating it up. I mean, stuff moves. I mean, so, so things move, and you really have to, you know, if you're going to shoot long-range and stuff, you really got to be dedicated to to double-checking your stuff. I mean, we've talked, I think, in our last podcast about, you know, the air density. You know, every place I go, I go to the Brooks Range this year, caribou hunting I will make sure there's a targeting camp because I cannot trust, you know, I definitely can't trust my sight marks from here to there. And I don't even trust them from, you know, I guess they got a target camp up there, but you know, you know, as well as I do, you got four guys in camp, something if something's going to happen. Yeah, You got to be prepared to, uh, you know, to move with it. So I've learned that, uh, you know, after these experiences with different material and, uh, I just decided, you know, I've never had a problem with 452X. You talk to the guys at BCY, you know, Vectrin is the reason. Materials have, you know, Dyneema and Vectrin in them. You know, I, I don't see any value in, uh, you know, going 100% uh, Vectron or 100% Dyneema strings. You know, they may not buzz as much, um, but I could care less. I don't want my strings moving. That's the number one thing. I don't want them moving. You know, these bows are very sensitive to, to adjustments and you you just, you got to have stuff stay together And, and 452X has the highest spectrum count of anything BCY makes. And I think pretty much everything else just is, you know, based on trying to eliminate the fuzzing you get with 452X, which can be controlled with just a little diligence, you know, with a light wax, you know, periodically.
0: So, Tim, I want to halt you for a second, you know, two two questions or two um, two things I, I want to make sure I haven't misspoke on when I've given people advice. When you talk about air density matters, I get that question a lot. And I don't notice um, too, too much from sea level with an increase um, uh, in altitude of three to 4,000 feet. Uh, for most people, it's not perceptible. When you go from sea level.
1: depends how, depends how far you're shooting
0: well and, and let me let me let me get to that um and you're 100 you're right Far, the farther the more you see but you know for most archers uh 60 yards you're not going to see too too much of a difference that i've found if you're from sea level to no. three four thousand um i have noticed a difference out to 60 from sea level to 10 to 12 definitely seen a difference there talk about that a little yep. bit so people are listening at one am I full of shit and two I have definitely seen when I went from my house at 10,000 feet to sea level at Alaska I saw a, a, a good amount four inches at 60 and at 80 to 100 I was pushing a foot um, oh,
1: but, that's, cool. that, that's exactly what I was going to say you know cause you live over there at 6,000 feet in Denver you I dead. live at
0: 10 10,000 feet
1: oh you were living at 10? yeah
0: yeah, And it and, and there is a difference going to sea level <laughs> a lot.
1: Oh, absolutely. And especially if it's sea level on the coast of Kodiak or something where you have all this mist and, and, you know, water in the air. You know, that stuff really knocks an arrow down. And, you know, it's one of the reasons I pick some, sometimes, you know, I'll pick the arrow choices that I do. You know, I run Pierce tours with a glue and thorn broadhead because I can run really big, small veins. You know, those type of arrow projectiles are going to fight through that quite a bit better at long range. You know, remember a couple of, you know, I really got that lesson was, I went to Kodiak one year and and with Sean and Andrew of mahamsky and, and the first day I went out, I, I'd actually shot a buck, a pretty long shot, but in retrospect, what had happened is, is this is back before I knew as much about range finders too. And if you do a down cut on a cosine range finder, it's not going to cut it enough. And this was a pretty long shot. And so it didn't cut it enough, but I actually, you know, my sight tape, it, you know, when I went and checked, it was off a bunch too. So they kind of one counteracted the other, and I and you know, I smoked the buck. In other terms, it's kind of like shit ass luck, right?
0: <laughs> well, and I, the thing, and you know, I don't want to, whatever. I don't want to be on here for four hours because you got a lot of shit to do today, but. There are certain things that I think, um, you know, as we're talking about this, uh, let's say the, the two right now, air density, string material. Most people aren't mm-hmm. going to find a perceptible difference in a lot of different string materials if you're shooting inside 50, 60 yards when you have a good quality string material. So if you have 452X, 452 Premium, and the, the million other, you know, whatever, there, there's a ton of different string materials. Most guys aren't going to notice. Yeah, um,
1: you. Right.
0: But... Having it built,
1: we encourage everybody to use 452x. I mean, it's the best material out there.
0: Well, and my problem is, is I use that, and people ask me why, and I'm like, I've had good luck with it. Well, what's the difference? Uh, I've had good luck with it. You know, I don't dive into it because I'm like, look, it works. I've never had an issue. It can fuzz up. I did a video the other day. Just I use a piece of leather and kind of burn it into the string and just wax your string. But, um, for the having the string built correctly, though. Is really fucking important. If it's not, you know, and that's one thing that people don't understand is, if it doesn't matter what material it's made of, it's not built correctly. You're gonna have issues.
1: Yeah, if it's not built correctly, you know, I mean, you see it all the time online. How, how do I stop my peep from rolling? Well, first, get a better string. You know, <laughs> this, how the string's made is, you know, dictates how much your peep rolls. And one one thing I'd caution people to, you know, what really makes a string not Want be really stable at full draw and not want to rotate is how well the bundle has been pre-stretched so that there's even amount of, this is before it's served, you know, You know, so that each strand has the same amount of tension on it. And then you've got to maintain that same tension outside the serving and under the serving. So I would caution when you buy a set of custom strings, avoid at all possible avoid twisting the string if you need to make minor adjustments you should do the work at the cables if you can and if you do have to twist the string always try to twist it up rather than down and that you could take a really good custom string and kind of screw it up when you start if you start untwisting and twisting it you know
0: now let's let's talk about that so people don't take that out of context cuz on on my end if you have a good string you shouldn't need to put from what I have found, more than a half to a full twist for peep alignment. That's about it.
1: Oh, well, uh, yeah, but, you know, in a perfect world, <laughs> I got five I got five different freaking bows, and I never seem to be able to, like, I don't know if it's just a different limb flexes or whatever. I, I, maybe I'll just I don't well, take the time to measure everything to the next butt, but... but um,
0: no, but you're now, now it's Tim, just, we're, we're talking about Tim Gillingham with multiple bows, and I would agree with you on my end. All of them take some tweaking. Right. But a guy gets one bow, yeah. one string. If you're putting six, seven, eight, ten twists in your string, something is, is probably wrong. You shouldn't need to twist that string well, yeah, two too Well, I mean, something's
1: wrong, you know, and, and I would encourage guys before they buy custom strings to know what they're ordering. You know, just because the factory says your string specs are this, this, and this, it may not be what's on your bow you know, you need to pull them off and measure them, you know, and, and all strings are measured with a hundred pounds of pressure on them. So, you know, that's not a lot of pressure, but you know, just try to mimic it as much as possible. I mean, I have a little John's jig I can put a hundred pounds of pressure on it, and measure it. and I send my specs over and you have Justin build my strings, you know, because I'm putting custom tunes on my bows because of my drawing, trying to gain a little bit more drawing out of them. And you know, cause, nothing
0: ever seems to fit but uh well I I mean the thing like uh you know the, the and I have issues with this too like I got multiple bows hanging and I got tons of different fletchings and arrows and I screw around and you know I have a relatively decent idea about tuning is you know when 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 most um you know I hey man I put a new set of strings on my bow doesn't tune arrows are changed and I'm like yeah the chances of that string maker mimicking what you had is not great because who, he doesn't know how long they've been on there, what stretched or whatever.
1: Right. Well, and, and that's another foul. I had a guy call me. He was a little hurt at Justin. I think it was more hurt cause he had to go back to a pro shop cause he rely on a pro shop to do everything for him. And there's just kind of a, a misunderstanding in the industry. Where they think they can go buy a custom set of strings throw them on a bow and nothing will ever move, okay? And that's not true because those servings are still stiff. They got to seat into the cam, you know. When you take that new bowtech cam and you have that serpentine wrap on the cam, those servings still all got to kind of stretch in and you know and loosen up a little bit in order to, to flow around those those angles. And so I typically, when I put a brand new set of strings in, I'll just hold the bow at full draw. For 15 minutes, put all the load I can on the cam, and and then I'll go do my tunes. i uh, get my, my, my bow tuned up, and then I'll I'll mark the cam on each side of the limb. Once I get my tune perfect, this is the tune I want, the speed I want, all the stuff. And then I may go back and uh, put it in the sh- my shooting machine or a draw board and hold it there for 15 minutes and just see if it creeps at all. And if it if it moves any then I'll put a half twist or whatever it takes to get it back. You do that one or two times, maybe three, it'll never move again. And then I'll wait for a warm day because people have to understand the load, the full load is on the cables at full draw and on the string at static. Okay. So you want to, you want to make sure you stretch the two differently. I know Justin tries to strip the wax. You know, he puts wax in while he's building, but tries to strip a lot of it out. But, when, when a string moves, it's simply the wax coming out of it, especially in temperature. Um, so so I like to take my bow out and put it in a hot car for just, you know, a little okay. while, <laughs> let, the, let the wax kind of beat out of the string and you'll watch those marks, but you got to have something to gauge it off of. So, you know, let, this one guy in particular, he was just like, well, my strings are moving. I'm like, well, how do you know? I mean, do you have anything, mar- yeah, I mean, they don't have anything marked, they have cans marked, they don't have anything measured. The string's removed. Let, okay.
0: Let me rewind because I want to make sure because I, I don't put it in the car, but I, new string, the first thing I do before I really, I'll shoot the bow a few times just because I, you know, want to shoot my bow. I just go set it out mm-hmm. in the sun. But before I set it out in the sun, I have my cams you marked. What's to that? Work. I know, right? Um, it's actually 94 today, <laughs> so it works. Um, right. Okay. It gets hotter than <laughs> shit where I'm at. So I mark this the cams of my original string if the bow was money, right? If the bow was shooting good and I'm swapping out new strings. Mark, when I say mark the cams, I mark where the cables right. are crossed. I mark everything. I put everything new back on. I tie a quick D-loop on. I don't re- generally throw a peep in because it's going to change anyway. And then I just go set that thing out in the sun for a couple hours. Do you suggest that yeah. for guys to do? Yeah, if uh,
1: absolutely. If it's hot. I mean, uh, the car the car works good. I mean, you can use a heat gun if you're careful, but I don't trust recommending people to do that. So yeah, um, forget Tim said that, don't, but, but don't the cables that. if you want to get the wax out of the cables and you want to seat them in really good, you have to be doing it. You have to, it has to be held at full draw because that's where they have the, the biggest amount of load. So when you draw a bow back and you hold it for, you know, no more than 15 or 20 seconds and fire it, you will and, and you go ahead and you stretch the strings in for that full draw for 10 or 15 minutes you're just going way past anything you're ever going to put on that bow shooting it, Right. Um, and so that just ensures that, you know, everything's stretching and good. And you're, and you know, sometimes I'll even take a heat gun if I'm like, no, I'm going, it hasn't been warm yet. And I'm, and I'm going to a tournament where I know it's going to be hot. I may just, when I have that boat full dry, I may just have my heat gun back away ways from it or a blow dryer or something and just, just put some heat to it, you know, just like when I worked on a railroad. We'd heat the rail up to the temperature that, you know, it was, I don't remember what it exactly was, but the idea was that you'd heat it up to the max of what it would see. So, you know, it wouldn't buckle on, it wouldn't start buckling in the summer when the, when the you know, the heat hit it. You know, and then you had to be careful to get it just right. So when it got cold, it didn't contract and pull apart. So, you know, well, it's uh, kind of the same same principle.
0: And and that's, uh, obviously, I worked in commercial glass forever aluminum. Bronze aluminum would, would expand in heat more than, um, you know, standard aluminum color. But it would expand a great deal. And... You know the the thing that I'm, I I want to make sure that I convey to anybody listening in is one help your string maker help you right and and don't be mad when you <laughs> yeah, get exactly. a I mean if your bow is dialed and I mean money go to if you don't have a bow press which you should get one go to a pro shop pull it off put it under tension measure everything or measure it not under tension with you just put a screwdriver in the eye loop and say, this is not under tension. These are to th- try to help him, right? Not, not everybody's going to have the ability to do what maybe yeah, Tim. Just,
1: yeah. You could just take a, a nail. I tell people take a 16 penny nail drive it into a tube before and then put one on the other end of drive it in, and just kind of pound them away from each other. You can get a pretty good close to a hundred pound uh, tension by doing that.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, with that, this is this is helping the stream maker help you go back to where you were. If you have a let's right. you know pick it up a, a, a PSE Evo or a Bowtech, you know whatever. Um, you know what's their 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 newest one? Because my buddy Cody has it. I love that bow. Uh, the thirty anyway, Revolt X or whatever. If you shoot that bow for a couple years with that string, things have stretched. And if you tuned accordingly, accordingly to the stretch and haven't checked anything, and, and then you go to a string maker and order a string for that, he's not going to be able to mimic what he does not know. That's going to be up to you to, to help him. And I get that question daily, man, I just put new strings on my bows, not flying. My arrow's not flying. Right. I'm like, yeah, man, I'm sure it's not shit changes. Like I don't ever check the axle.
1: Go ahead. People don't understand what little, how little it takes. I I took my ASA bow last night and I put, I went from eighteen pounds of holding weight to twenty two pounds of holding weight. It completely changed the tune of the bow. I completely had to go through every one of my arrows and retune them, and I probably had to rotate knocks on over half of them. Okay, everything changes. With every tiny little thing you do, and yeah, you got like you said, you got to help the string manufacturer help you.
0: Well, and the other thing too, like um, if you let's say you, you order just a factory or not a factory, a custom set of of strings, but you don't give them any dimensionality. You you just order the strings. Mark your cam mm-hmm. to where you were with your old strings. And when I say mark the cam, mark where the cables are crossing the cam, I use like just a silver Sharpie. And then when you get the new right. strings, then you know what you may need to tweak or twist. Now, you know, for people listening in that are going to message Tim or myself, you need a bow press to make this work. And I strongly suggest for everybody as, as money is applicable to, or or finances are, are available Get a bow press, right? And then learn to to tune in time. So, you know, one thing that, and Tim, you're much better at this than I am, like, like people laugh because I'll be, I'll tweak a bow for hours, meaning I'll add a couple pounds of holding weight, take away a couple pounds of holding weight, um, I add a little weight, take a little weight on the stabilization system. I mean, that takes equipment to do. And on the holding weight side, you need to know how to tune and you need a bow press to do it. But if you start out of the gate by just throwing a set of strings on, you're setting yourself up for uh, an uphill road to hoe because it's not going to be identical to what you had.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, a factory spec string may not be, you know, I don't know how many bows I've sold to guys. And and I I say, well, tell me your, uh, your draw. Well, I'm, uh, I'm 31. I said, Okay have somebody measure from the string to the throat of grip plus an inch and three quarters. Cause that's how you measure drawing. And almost every single one of them are over a half inch off cause they really don't know. And you have to know these things about your setup, you know, and I, I shot a lot of years honestly without using a draw board, big mistake. You know. And so I'm just, you know, I used to like mark an arrow, and onto the arrow rest or the riser, which was, you know, I guess kind of the same, but you know, I didn't have a process down. I was just kind of, you know, just trying to wing it, you know, and uh, winging it gets you so good. Yeah. You know, if you want to know if, if it's the, 16th inch of draw length or the one ounce you put on your stabilizer, it made you hold better. You better, you better know everything, you know? So, because it could have been one of the, why they say move one thing at a time so that you know what actually made the difference.
0: Yeah. a hundred, percent. And
1: it just takes time. It takes time to learn these things, you know? And I mean, I shot this weekend, won the IBO, but I still felt like whenever I was under like pressure and I, and I made kind of a tense shot, I got left and right. So that's usually from not having, for me, I've learned not having enough tension in the system and enough, basically not enough holding weight. So, so uh, <laughs>
0: let's not dive into the holding weight just yet because that's going to really confuse right. people. But let's um, sure, rewind. We talked about strings, um, you know, different materials, things like that. So when, um, one of the reasons I have you back on is sight leveling. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, big question I get all the time, you know, standard, you know, you know, tuning, where do I put the arrow according to the burger hole? Um, and a million other questions. A lot of this is, is depending upon your bow and your draw length, meaning some bows may prefer a little bit higher arrow according to the burger hole. Some may want it dead center that I found.
1: Yeah, and your grip, too, you know. I mean, how you grip the bow matters. So when you
0: talk about grip, that's not just a left and wide or, or fat-handing the grip. That's also heel pressure as well. All of that yeah, has to do with yeah, this.
1: Yeah, you shoot a high, low, medium wrist grip. And, you know, I, I guess basic rule of thumb is, is, you know, if you're hanging low, and this happens a lot with a lot of hunting bows because you have very high let off. So when you have high let off high let off works as long as your bow stays light because you don't need as much leverage to hold a light bow up. But as you make the bow heavier, you need more holding weight to actually hold it up and or leverage. Okay. Leverage comes from several different things, comes from proper drawing. If you're overextended, um, you're not gonna be able to hold it up. If you're too short, you're using muscle and you're going to fatigue out. Okay. So it's gotta be, the bone structure has gotta be in alignment. You gotta have your drawing, proper you know i think a little bit of ledging on the face you know or on your anchor point if you just got a really loose anchor it's going to feel really loose you know if you go look you know read i read a, a, a book that was pretty profound you know and I, I, I use it a lot is david tubbs high power rifle he talks about how he gets into his rifle positions and, and a lot of it's about binding the body of to support itself. And and it's no different. If you have a real loose anchor point where you're not hardly touching anything, it's not solid, right? So it's leverage. Um, how much hand you have in the grip. Now, personally me, I've tried this full circle so many times I can't even tell you. And I end up right back where I started. Um, I shoot a medium to high wrist. Okay. That puts the contact point in the grip higher in a smaller area. Now I also shoot a 12 degree angle on my grip now and that just brings a little back support back up in under my hand, but still maintains the the pressure at a smaller point. And, and, And the more you can channel that pressure to a smaller point, the more, you know, the more repeatable it is. If I put a bow in a shooting machine and I put a grip tape on it, it will not repeat itself. Okay. Because it cannot center itself. And years ago, I started wearing a, a, a spandex glove. And when I hunt, I wear usually like the Kuyu liners. They make a, a, a lightweight fleece liner that I really like to hunt with. So when I go out and shoot my hunting bow and sight it in, I do everything with that on because number one, I want my hands warm when I'm shooting. But number two, I want to shoot with what I'm going to shoot, you know, with. And you watch a lot of stuff on TV, guys shooting face masks and all kinds of crap that you know, you got to do things the same because everything matters. And I have tried low-risk grips. Yes, I aim better with a low-risk grip, but I can't hit anything. I've tried grip tape. It feels really good, but I can't repeat it. And so I've found that I use a spandex glove on my left hand. I pull into the grip. You know, Randy Older said this years ago. You want to find the torque-free spot of your grip? Put some lotion on your hand. The hand will go where it's going to go. Well, mine does that every time because I have this this glove that's not allowing the grip to torque, okay? So I just seat against it, and it goes where it's going to go, and then I have a piece of tape on the front of my riser I put a little uh, rubber O-ring under, and that uh, rubber O-ring is where I put my finger. That sets my wrist position. So the hand goes where it's going to go to the torque-free spot, and then I build the grip up around that for support. And... It's one of the reasons I started having DL Designs over in France build these grips that I sell. You know, for for Bowtech, for and he builds a Matthews grip, and now a, a Hoyt grip, and I had him build a Hoyt grip that's a little bit wider because a grip that's really like round. If I put a real round grip in a shooting machine, it will not repeat itself. Okay, if I put a a woman's bow in a shooting machine that has six pounds of holding weight, it will not repeat itself. Okay, so can you imagine how much harder it is for an individual to repeat itself if a shooting machine can't even do it?
0: Well, let's rewind just a sec. So to put this into perspective, when you talk about grip, uh, grip is, you know, pinnacle, building block, whatever you want to call it. The, 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 the One of the major problems that people have is a, a consistent grip. And I can go through the list of things that affects. Huge, um, yeah. But it affects everything. It affects tune. It affects accuracy. So you see someone. Well, it sh- Go ahead.
1: Yeah, it affects alignment. Alignment. Yep. Alignment is tune. Okay.
0: So when you talk about alignment. And alignment I, of the
1: power stroke of the string. and
0: Go ahead. Sorry, Tim.
1: Well, I'm just saying tuning is alignment. Aligning the power stroke of the string with the center line of the arrow. That is tuning. So anything that you do to that, you know, people just say torque. Well, torque comes from many different aspects, you know the grip being the biggest one, but that's why you see a lot of top-level shooters shooting higher, higher holding weights is because that extra tension helps everything go to center up.
0: Okay, so when when Tim's talking about alignment, you know, um, you know things like that. When you come out to shoot in the morning, and I'm just going off the history of Aaron, and probably Tim, you could go off the history of Tim when you started shooting a bow. When you shoot your first three to four arrows, and let's say they're seven inches right, you're like what the hell's going on? You fling a few more arrows, then, then magically, that arrow just starts drifting back in the center, which happens. You know, a lot of guys, is it, a, is it peep fade, peep alignment? Is it, you know what? A lot of times that may be you're changing your grip as you're shooting, not all the time, but when you, when you go and you've been shooting a while and you fling an arrow through paper and it shoots a bullet hole. And then the next morning you grab your bow and you shoot through paper and it's tearing, whatever, three quarters knock left or a half inch knock left. It could be other things. Generally from what I find, it's your grip. Would you agree with that?
1: Well, for, for me, it's a lot of things, okay? I always feel like, like the first three or four arrows I aim, like, amazing. And then my body starts to loosen up and I go to hell. But, um... <laughs> but some of that's like I run a leather wrist strap and some of it's just the, you got to seat the leather back in, in the strap. Um, um, I, I don't have grip problems no.
0: but no, no, I know
1: because number I, one, it doesn't matter. Whether,
0: you shoot that glove though. It
1: doesn't matter whether my hand is hot. Yeah. I shoot the glove because I don't want my hand when it's sweaty, when it's clammy, when it's, dry. I don't want it to be different. Okay. It's the same. It, it's closer to the same. It could be soaking wet and that, that glove creates a barrier that kind of makes it the same or closer to the same. So I know I don't think grip for me personally is, is the case because that's, that's a form thing that, that I have solved. Um, I, I think the wrist strap settling in probably is the number one thing for me but but, um, but people, wrist
0: people listening in
1: and then just simply my muscles get, and way my muscles getting stretched in and my you know you know maybe i should stretch a little bit more but
0: yeah well we're men we're not going to stretch but um at least i don't stretch as much as i should <laughs> um but would you say though i mean with your dealings with you know pro shops and shooters whatever else that 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 grip is or inconsistent grip is going to cause a lot of people those different problems and you know i'll see guys that it's
1: crazy it it really is
0: no dive in dude like go it's always the bigger
1: stronger yeah it's always the bigger stronger guy that's got the problem guy that frames houses for a living or you know he's like an auto mechanic he's got big strong hands he just can't let the bow sit there it takes a while. I've had buddies of mine that um, I couldn't get to you know, shoot one arrow at the same through paper, and I put that glove on their hands and fixed it instantly. Um, but some guys, it just takes a while. I make I had a buddy of mine that's a framer for a living. I just make him take one arrow and stand in front of paper, at five, shoot it through paper five yards, and he'll start to figure out what he's doing because when he, he gets a cause and effect, right, that's what paper tells you. You know, paper is the way you should be doing this, not shooting groups because groups are too subjective. You have your aiming involved. If you want to know, are you repeating? Like yesterday I'm shooting in my arrows and the first thing I do is I take a bear shaft and I'm shooting it. Okay. And I bear shafts are super sensitive. So if I make a mistake, I can see and I I was actually struggling keeping that bear shaft shooting the same. And I realized that I'd forgot to yeah, it's just not getting every bow set up exactly the same or changing something at a tournament. And I had I had lengthened my wrist strap just, or I tightened it up just slightly, so I had to back it out a couple times. Once I got that, then I could see my peep alignment come in. I was kind of forcing my left and right peep alignment, and it was causing some, some tension and some face contact, and I think that was causing that bare shaft to you know, not be, I wasn't shooting it actually perfectly consistent. And once I got that adjusted, then I was, I, I got that air shaft tuned in doing the right thing and then went into tuning my arrows. So, um, Hey, I always say paper tells no lies, man.
0: I, I was just, and I, I don't want to confuse people listening in. Some of this is higher end stuff and far past beginner, but it's all important. No, no. Go ahead.
1: Exactly. It's the best for, for the beginner.
0: No, oh no, I don't mean paper. I I do not mean paper tuning. I'm talking about everything we're talking about. So what I'm leading up to with that is what Tim just said. The paper tells no lies. Um, That part is, I I agree with Tim from beginner on, like you may be confused with the string material stuff. You might be confused with hand pressure, no matter what, to find all these things out, paper will get you, will help get you there in my, in my opinion. Because it's going to it's tell you what you're doing or not doing correctly.
1: It's all I use, never walk back tuned to bow a day in my freaking forty year archery career. So, I don't believe it. Makes no sense. It's for people that can't paper tune their bows, and so they, and or they have a contact problem, and so they make random adjustments until it groups better. When they need to fix the problem at the root.
0: And honestly, if if this was ten years ago, I would have probably argued with you, but. I can't agree with you more now. The more I dive down the rabbit hole of shooting um, when I was like <laughs> making myself look like a dipshit. What I found was when I walk back tuned, if I would have done what I ended up doing, quote unquote, walk back tuning, if I would have fixed it up front at the paper, um, that would have solved the problem of trying to screw in or the walk back tuning. Now, I don't think it's a bad idea for you to walk back and shoot.
1: You have to understand. If you look at my tuning procedures they always start with powder, okay?
0: Can they find those? You look those? At most
1: of my boats they have a thick layer of powder on them. So, because until you have clearance, you're going to chase your tail on the other aspects of it.
0: Well, and not not just clearance, also hand torque or bow torque or your grip. You'll chase that as well. As well. Okay,
1: but what I'm, what I'm saying is, is bow torque and hand torque will show up through paper, but it can be a it can be a inaccurate. Um, assessment if you don't have clearance. And the reason a lot of guys, especially if you look at target archers that that do walk back in or promote it, most of the guys that do that are shooting a blade, okay? And a blade like a launcher blade, a spring steel launcher blade is always in the way, okay? The arrow flexes vertically and comes back down before it leaves the bow. Well, those two inherently have to collide with each other at some point. And so when you go out and you do so-called walk back tuning or group tuning. And there's some real logic behind guys that don't follow my process for tuning arrows and stuff for shooting a so-called high left hair. If you notice on most say tournament bows, and you might even notice on some of your hunting bows, the left side of your launcher is wore out. Well, what causes that is when the cable guard loads up at full draw and pulls everything over to the left, when you fire, it starts to recover to the right, which inherently pushes the arrow over on the left side of the launcher. Okay? So if you're actually shoving up the arrow at a high left hair, there's some logic behind the fact that you're, you're uh, helping it kind of miss that contact. And a lot of guys will tune to a bull hole off of a blade, and you're inherently got contact. If you if you want to see it, you know, draw the bow back, powder an arrow, have somebody set it on there at full draw and shoot it into a really hard target where it doesn't go in very far, and you'll be able to see how much contact you have. One thing that you'll never see is two even scratch marks all the way down the arrow. Because, you know, the arrow's flexing, the launcher's vibrating and moving around, and that's why I shoot a hansky rest and we drop it in the first half of the arrow trap Because it's only in the way once it starts to flex away from the launcher. So you got you can't drop them too early, but you 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 don't want to drop them too late either. So
0: so uh, uh, I don't. I want to make sure people. We're going over a lot here, which is all really good info. So I want to make sure people understand a few different things. One, I would say. What's your voice? What's that?
1: It said, I want your
0: voicemail to be full. Oh, give me something to do. Oh, fuck. Um, well, and the thing is, is there's <laughs> some things I'm really good at, and there's other things I will call a Tim or a Levi or whoever to, to ask questions. Or um, uh, Tony Clem is a buddy of mine live by me. You know, hey, whatever. And the thing is, is, I learned this probably the same way you did by trial and error and occasionally asking a question, which I think is the best way. If you can learn it yourself, ask uh, somebody a question and then learn it by, by doing, I think you're going to be better off. So we, we've kind of, we've, uh, we've went down a few rabbit holes here. I get questions that are so, you know, to me, like, uh, kind of Mm, rudimentary or or like dude just shoot your bow type of questions that I, I and i don't want to come off dickish when i answer but when i have a guy say hey i want you to go over uh peep alignment well align your fucking peep that that's my class like make sure it's alignment and then i think well peep alignment also has to do with body alignment. sorry go ahead man yeah
1: well deductive reasoning and common sense are not a strong trait in today's society well
0: well well people alignment has to do with body alignment it has to do with draw length and i'm like well just align your people then i think well maybe the guy's got a 30 inch draw and he's a 29 and the the thing is is the more you become an art of the trade the better off you're going to be and so when i hear guys (laughs) ask me about tuning tuning to me is like wiping my butt it's it's super simple like you know, there's some general rules you want to follow, and there's a few rules you kind of throw out the window and and uh, just you know jack with your bow a little bit. But you know, when you have hey, there's no go there ahead. There are
1: some bows that'll make you want to group 10 <laughs> Well, <laughs> probably with with, <laughs> Bud, with Bud Light.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I will. I don't want to mention too many different companies, but a few years ago there was a company that started with an M that had a bow that started with an M. And I had tried to tune several of those. And literally, if you put the arrow and, and snapped it on the string and looked down it, it would be six inches left of the stabilizer to get it to. T- I, I mean, I'm not a tuning um, messiah. I've got a fairly good idea what I'm doing and tune mostly anything. But if, if when you're going to, to shoot your bow, top to bottom, align your arrow relatively at a 90 degree angle, somewhere between the center of the burger hole or a little high general rule of thumb mm-hmm. would you agree with that
1: yeah if you'll notice the mat like the matthews grips, they're they're sit below center a lot of their bows um that's that's so that i think the arrow should be in the bows like that i think you want to start more middle and that's more i think to try to get the the bow string or the loop in the center of the bowstring, which i don't think matters a lot um you know i just find if if I take my BowTex, for example, and I just go right through the center of the burger hole, yeah, you kind of tend to feel like it hangs up a little bit low, and you just start moving it up. Jesse Broadwater, for example, you know, one of the techniques he said he does, when he first gets a bow, he'll throw a side on it and just start twisting the loop up the string, because the serving on the string acts kind of like a thread, so you can kind of just twist it up and down the string and just find the spot where it wants to sit. You know, but honestly, you need to do that with all the stabilizers and the weight on the bow that you're going to have, because all that affects that. So it's, lever- it's like we talked before, leverage. leverage.
0: Yeah. Fulcrum okay. points is what I always call it is the, your fulcrum point, your mm-hmm. leverage, whatever. And so uh, Tim, out of the people, you know, that aren't on the the professional archery tour, how many can shoot broadheads at 80 to hundred yards or field points and group inside of a paper plate?
1: mm a handful but most of them have some type of competitive background
0: but 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 ones that aren't shooting yeah, but a handful is a good that's where i would say i know a handful
1: what do those people have and in- even even if most most guys that ha- that can do that um, that i know personally like i said they have had some type of at least amateur level competitive shooting in their background um whether it's local level, regional level, I mean, I always encourage guys that want to get better to just get out, and mingle with the guys that are good. You know, really, um, that's where you're going to learn. Well,
0: and my my point though to this is, as far as when you go to shoot, um, like last night we were shooting. I was I was trying different fletching uh, combos with uh, like shorter, high profile four fletch and low profile four fletch, whatever at a hundred yards, and for me at a hundred yards when I'm shooting good, I'm in a paper plate and that's with no wind, um, you know, around the size of a paper plate. So 10, 12 inch circumference. And and that's about as good as I can get. When you, when you talk about shooting long distance, you are talking about consistent grip, bow tune, arrow tune, fletching configuration, uh, you know, multiple different things. And you can't you cannot expect to group very well at longer distances, Peep alignment, body alignment. There's a lot to it. And so stabilization systems, it goes on and on it's learning the, the art. So when, when, when you hear someone like Tim go like off the deep end and tuning, Tim is very proficient, well past a hundred yards. Are, is everybody going to need to shoot past a hundred yards? No, but learning the things that Tim has learned is not going to hurt you ever, even if you shoot inside a 50. And when I when I say that, let's give a scenario, and, and Tim, I'll line this up for you, what issues there could have with the scenario I give you from top to bottom. I have Tim. Tim's a new hunter, and we're on an out hunt. And Tim has his left leg about 14 inches higher than his right, and his right leg 14 inches in front of his left leg. We are at a Thirty-seven to forty-five degree angle, and we have a fifteen mile an hour crosswind to shoot this animal. What issues could that person have with that set that that specific scenario <laughs> with his bow? A
1: bunch. So, first well, problem, would be, the first problem would be his rangefinder.
0: <laughs> so we we gotta wait till like closer to an hour before we get into the rangefinder because that is the number one question I get. But after the rangefinder. <laughs> Which he's right.
1: <laughs> well, the biggest problem you're going to have when you get out of position is, is you don't pull the bow as hard against the stops. You're not keep. Your, it's, it's very, very difficult to create the same alignment. So you have to really remember to pull very hard and to kind of set up your shot level and then try to tilt. I don't. You. Know, I don't even think you really need to tilt. But the whole principle is. You know, you see guys doing it all the time. They'll draw a level and then they tilt. When I shot Pro Series over in Europe and we shot real stream vertical stuff like you're talking, I actually found it was easier to set my alignment and my tension kind of more on the angle of the target. But I was just very conscious of making sure my back arm was around as far and hard against the wall as I could. um, Because that was the number one problem is that you just couldn't maintain that same tension and alignment. And some guys like Dave Cousins will actually, you know, set their bows. If they know they're shooting a lot of steep, nasty stuff, they'll set their length up just a shade shorter so that they, they can get back against the, uh, the wall. Yeah. So, so
0: like with that scenario I gave Tim out of the gate, there's going to be peep alignment to your housing. That's going to be one, and that has to do with everything from body alignment to draw length, so on and you know so forth. Your second and third axis. <laughs>
1: sorry, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, your level's huge, but you you know th- that alignment affects your third axis. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can't pull the same tension, your third axis is going to be off. Also, um, ah, what. Are I just had some thought and I lost it. Um, Let me throw a couple, ahead,
0: I'll couple more out there. The other thing, if you're shooting a fixed blade broadhead and you are torquing the bow because your left foot is high and your right foot is front, the 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 the, you're, the alignment of your body is thrown off even more. And if you started out of the gate with bad alignment, it's going to be worse with that scenario. If you're shooting a fixed blade broadhead, and this is where I get in arguments with guys with fixed and mechanical. Um, you know, a mechanical may not open. Well, a fixed blade may not hit the fucking dot. So, what's worse, right?
1: The the point. I love. love, Yeah, I'm gonna stop you right there. I love this. Mechanicals (laughs) don't open bullshit. (laughs) I've shot nothing but mechanical since 1992. Guess what? I've never had a broadhead that never opened. Ninety percent of mechanical broadhead problems or fixed blade problems or any problem is the shooter's knowledge and the amount of effort they put into testing the stuff in real world hunting conditions. If you trust a manufacturer that your broadhead flies like a field point, you're an idiot. Okay. I concur. Broadheads don't fly like field points. and Not even mechanical. I remembered my, yeah, none of them, not even mechanical. I got one, I got one go-to broadhead that I go to when I have a guy that I know won't practice, like the guy I hunt deer with in, in Nebraska. I know he won't practice. I know they fly exactly like a field point out to 120 yards. But that's the only one I know um, but the, the fact, you know, the fact of the matter is, is you have to put that stuff into hunt mode. And it's like, I know where you were going with that. Broadheads don't fly like field points. And they damn sure don't fly like field points. If you're pointing 37 degree slope, uh, in a 25 mile an hour crosswind. you know, I shot three elk with fixed blade broadheads in Idaho, cause I was forced to all three of them were somewhat so, so shots. The first one had ice on the aeroplane dock, hit the fricking thing in the luck. I hit him in the neck and I got lucky. The next four went in a five-inch group, you know, because they didn't have ice on them. Um, Wouldn't have happened as bad with a mechanical okay? Wouldn't have happened as bad with a good drop-away rest. Uh, The second one, 25, 30-mile-an-hour crosswinds, I had to gauge how much that arrow was going to take off. Well, I was wrong. It was about double, okay? (laughs) I ended up killing the elk, fine, but it was a bad shot because of a... You know, I was forced to shoot a fixed blade broadhead, but been much easier calculation with a mechanical broadhead. Um, the third one was just that it happened fast, 63 yards, not a long shot. I livered him, killed him fine, but I probably missed my point of aim by five or six inches because I was a little bit jangled. Again, that's not going to happen near as bad with a mechanical broadhead. I'm a pr- huge proponent of good rear-deploy mechanical broadheads. But, uh, you know, that being said, we're not going to, Get everybody to agree with us. So, but those are the reasons why they're more forgiving and they're especially more forgiving at the moment of truth and for marginal shots.
0: I talked about this when I had Kyle Douglas on the podcast, and you know, people ask me this gun to your head, what broadhead are you shooting? And I'm like, I'm shooting a mechanical. And and I have my preference, you have yours. I like severs, you shoot thorns, any good mechanical. And they're
1: good rear deployment. They're both good rear deployment mechanical.
0: And my, my, you know, I I get where people are are asking that question and there's a lot of shit like archery talk is one of the, in my opinion, one of the world's worst places to get information. Um, You know, the the best place to get info is a guy that can hit what he's aiming at and has some animals on the ground, things like that, right? And so for me with a compound, I have a 29 inch draw. I'm shooting a 480 ish grain arrow at 280. More than enough to shoot damn near any mechanical at any animal. So, if you say "gun to my head," and there's a at 48 yards, a 240 inch <coughs> mule deer bedded, are you shooting a mechanical or a fixed? Oh, I, with with a compound, head. I'm I'm shooting a That's fucking me- mechanical. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Damn right, I'm shooting a two inch cutting diameter plus thorn rift right through the frickin' rib cage. So,
0: while we're talking about that, the, the and I got like two other things I want to cover for sure, maybe three, why a mechanical? Now, with a stick bow, it's way different, obviously. I'm not going to shoot a mechanical with a stick bow, so I want to make sure this is clear. If I have a 20-mile-an-hour crosswind or a 40-mile-an-hour crosswind, and I can tell you this without a doubt because I have my house set up much like Tim does, I can shoot out of my garage, out to, well, any distance, but we have bag targets out to 120. And I have a target out there, Um, you know, I have smaller targets to bigger as you go out. So I have a matrix at 80, what people, if people could see, like, if I could show people and I'm going to start videoing this, the wind drift from arrow and fletching and broadhead configuration at 80 yards, cause I'm out of the wind. So I'm good, right? I'm not blowing around. These are accurate shots or as accurate as I can be. And Tim, you know, this. The difference between an inch and an eight solid fixed blade broadhead and a mechanical was a 20 mile an hour wind drift left to right at 80 yards. What would you say mm-hmm. that difference
1: is? It's like probably four times.
0: Yeah, that's pretty, it I, a little bit less. On,
1: it depends on, it depends on how much blade surface the mechanical has exposed. You know, that has a lot to do with it too. You know, if you've got a, a kill zone versus say a thorn or you got a, uh, blood sport night fury versus, uh, a kill zone. Those those still have different wind drift characteristics because the amount of blade surface area they have exposed, even though they're mechanicals, they're better than a fixed blade all the way across the board. But you know, there there's, you know, I, I tend to take everything to the 10th degree. Every setup I built is optimized for exactly what I'm doing. So, that's why I guess one of the reasons that that I shoot the, thorn glue-in broadhead in you know, a Pierce arrow because I get the. Why would I want to give up anything? Is what I'm saying. Well, and that's why would I want to give up? Why would I want to give up wind performance for what? What am I going to give up? What am I going to gain?
0: Well, let's take a quick step back. Um, when when Tim's talking about what he is he going to gain for most people's setups you are not gaining anything going to a mechan- or a fixed blade. Now, uh, and, and if you have a really short draw or really low poundage, it's a little bit different. You're going to want to shoot a fixed blade, or I think you should shoot a fixed blade. Um,
1: I, you know, I don't even believe that. I've got a girl on my staff has got a 26-inch draw. She was 52 pounds. She shot five deer uh, with a 2.2 thorn last year, complete pastures on all of them. Um, she shot a 400-pound boar hog uh, two weeks ago. And you know, quartering shot, got into the opposite shoulder, shot on the smaller pig, pass through. I watched Jake Jacobson here locally, shoot a 2.3 kills on 64 pounds, 340 grain arrow on, well, the first animal he killed was about a 397 bull. And he said, Tim, in 50 years, I've never seen a blood trail like that. The entry (laughs) hole on that elk was, and he got complete penetration, okay? He went to Africa, stacked a bunch of animals up with it. I just, what what I have told him under his setup to shoot a 2.3. No, I'd have probably told him to shoot a 1.75, but I still don't believe that because you're shooting 55 pounds, my cousin, you know, she's in the gold tip catalog. She lives in Iowa. She shoots 52 to 55 pounds, shoots a 400 spine XT Hunter. She shoots uh, I think, and what broadhead I had her shoot it was a kill zone or no, it's just some two blade rages. Um, she's going to shoot kill zones, probably the 1.75. Um, Joel Maxwell's wife shoot, Janice shoots the same two inch rages that he shoots the 55 pounds. Um, Tiffany Likowski shoots rages. They all, people are shooting it successfully. You just got to pick the broadhead that's going to penetrate better. That's blade angle. And then it's tip profile. Okay. Cause a rear deploy is going to, catch a lot less drag going in than say uh something like a a schwacker so
0: with what tim's saying and i don't disagree and tim and i are a little bit different on this but for the most part tim and i agree more or less on everything i don't think tim is incorrect on that 50 plus pounds and 26 27 inch draw when you're at that lower draw and 40 pound range that's probably where I may or may not disagree well, yeah, or agree yeah. with Tim. It's a little bit different. Yeah.
1: But my. I would never tell. I've got, yeah, I've never told him shoot anything but a two blade fix, probably at that point, or a Vontech or something like that.
0: Yeah, okay. So Tim and I are there in great. So distance wise, like with Amy, my wife, my wife has a very long draw length. In fact, she's shooting a little bit shorter draw length. So I had to lengthen it. She's a 27 and inch draw, 45 to 48 pounds. For the most part, we're going at, we, she's shooting a 1.5 sever or an iron will. Now, Amy does, my wife does not stretch it out super, super far, but 40 yards for hunting. Now I have seen her put animals down with a sever 1.5 and I would have no issue with the broadhead that, that Tim recommends. And I've seen her put animals down with, um, fixed blades as well. The one thing that people have to understand when they're diving into this, you got to pay the Tollman. So for me to get that, that mechanical to steer I can have a le- a lower fletch, a smaller fletch, shorter fletch, lower profile fletch. I put a little bit higher. I put a two point six inch. Um, I I you know for for her, I put a two point six inch, a little bit longer vein on, to steer that fixed blade. When there's a higher wind, what is worse? More wind drift or the potential of her not hitting what she's aiming at and not getting a pass through because more than most likely, when you hit the shoulder blade at that lower weight, you're not going through anyway. Doesn't matter what you have on the end of your arrow. So
1: oh, wow. that's a bunch of ego driven hyperbole. <laughs> oh, the Ashby, you can shoot through shoulder. Yeah,
0: well, Tim, you and I reliably both know on, uh, yeah, reliably is the big one. You and i both shoot a pretty heavy setup and have for years and i always va- aim pretty tight to the shoulder if i clip the scapula or get in on the inside of the t i'm probably going to go through and it doesn't really matter what i shoot to go through that and I, i've proven that with animals uh you know putting them on the ground i shoot heavier poundage tim has a longer of draw lengths i can shoot a little bit heavier arrow you know whatever but the the bottom line is when you're when you're figuring this out when people ask me these questions I get guys with, hey, I got a 30-inch draw length to 500-grain arrow. Can I shoot a mechanical at an elk? I'm like, uh, <laughs> you can shoot whatever you want, actually. And they're yeah. like, what do you mean? And I'm like, literally, you can shoot whatever you want. Um, and and t- to dive into that, like, where does that line cross? Because anybody, you know, some of those questions, I, I, I have to assume they're on Archery Talk or reading Ashby theories.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just, you get this, idiot Ashby freaking out here influencing Pope and Young and putting out directives that are told BS you know and me and Joel Maxwell have this conversation he he gets more perturbed about it than I do but uh, whatever I mean I just people are going to do it you can kill dare with about anything it doesn't really matter um, but like I think that threshold does lie kind of around the area you and I are talking about I would probably say it's a little sketchy for your wife to shoot a mechanical but you had her do it. She picks probably the best one that she can get. That one or a 1.5 rage, you know. At least they build a 1.5 for those lower energy setups. That you know, it's blade angle. Blade angle is what impedes penetration. Okay. Yeah. Um,
0: and it's inside of 20 yards. And, keep in mind,
1: you know, no, so it's yeah, close. I mean, Whitetail, that matters huh? too. I mean, my wife shot an antelope one time with a with a gladiator at 18 yards and got a complete pass at 40 40 pounds you know, and then I had her shoot a meal deer with it at 45 yards and she center punched him and it was a little suspect. So, I mean, I kind of backed her off to a, a smaller wash mechanical and basically she's never hunted since. but <laughs> so, well, well, when people, yeah, that, was, that was just kind of the main, but I, have got a couple girls on my staff. I don't know if you know who Corky Richardson is. Yeah. Oh yeah his, his, uh, that. yeah, his ex wife and, and, daughter both have stacked up a ton of game elk with, with 600 ultralights. I mean, these arrows are 300 grains with, uh, but they all shoot the, uh, uh, Magnus Stinger broadheads, which I think is one of the better penetrating two blade mechanicals on the market or six blades. I'm sorry. And, and, and at that kind of distance that you like I said you hold your wife to, and they probably stay inside of that 40, you know, 40 yard range too. Um, it's a very, very adequate setup, and their arrow flight's not a big deal. I mean, the wind drift typically, you know, yeah, they're pretty tough to shoot 40 mile an hour, or I mean, 20 mile an hour at 40 yards, even with a setup like that. But, you uh, know, they got to choose their battles, you know. Well, you know, I tend to want to shoot heavier weight, heavier pound, just so I can shoot heavier arrows faster, so that when I got a mule deer standing on the other ridge at, you know, 100 yards, that I know what the wind's going to do to it. It ain't about penetration. It's never about penetration. It's always about wind drift. It's about me trying to hit where I need to. And if I'm shooting a 350 grain arrow or a 380 grain arrow, the wind's going to push it around a heck of a lot more than if I'm shooting, you know, a 440 grain arrow or a 450 grain arrow with 140 grains of total weight up front or a little bit more. Um, I, I, I tend to not go above that. The heaviest arrow I've ever shot hunting was 515 grains, but I was still shooting at 215 foot a second because I was shooting 80 pounds. Three, I'm not shooting 80 pounds anymore.
0: 315, <laughs> not 215,
1: 315. 315, yeah. It was a, <clears throat> dude, that thing was a beast setup. You come out in the yard and shoot in the wind, and you're just like, well, I'll just shoot a little bit over to the left. And, you know, you shoot a broad in like a kill zone. You know that if I hit it anywhere from the back of the ribs to the front shoulder, it smoked so okay
0: so while we're talking about that when you know we diving into the next subject here um you know wind drift arrow setups point weight uh components fletchings whatever when you um and you dive into this even more than me which is scary but like we we test a lot out of the garage out to 100 yards and when i say Mm -hmm. test a lot does a 500 grain arrow with 125 up front fly does, does it drift more than a 500 grain arrow with 175 up front does three low profile veins drift more than four high profile veins that are shorter so three longer low pros compared to four uh, higher profile shorter veins like all these different setups um you know when people kind of dive into uh, this was,
1: go ahead yeah, it's, it's sixes at some point i mean at, at some point you're just splitting hairs you know um I try to shoot small veins because I think one of the number one problems in bow hunting is the animal, especially with whitetails, coos, antelope. Um, they dodge the sound of the arrow coming out. And so I try to keep that air signature down. That's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons I shoot the setup that I'm shooting right now, which is like I said, the glue in thorn broadhead in a pierced tour is the fact that I can run the same veins I shoot feet archer with a 2.1 low profile four flex. They don't hear them coming. They do not hear him coming. I I mean, Steve Cobrain, I don't know if you, you, do you know who Steve Cobrain is? Oh
0: yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Steve's a a beast of a bow hunter, probably killed 60 species with a bow. No other white guy has. He's kind of like the modern day quintessential British explorer. You know, he just gets off on, on on that kind of stuff. And he's just super good. He's about my size and, and he, he, he shot our arrows for years and, I haven't heard from him in a couple of years. He moved back to the States, but uh, South Africa is kind of a cluster now. And, uh, you know, he, he, did, he, he did a test one time on it. Polly He said, I want to, to see if the, arrow, the animal was actually jumping the sound of the bow or are they jumping the sound of the arrow. So I put a target behind the blind, and he said I would film the animal while I shot a target. And he said, they don't even hardly move. He said, then you shoot at them and they just come unwound. And I kind of equate it to like if you and I are sitting around and you hear a bumblebee coming, you don't see it, but you're, you're moving, you know, you know, it's coming and you know, it's coming fast because you can hear it progressively getting yep. uh, closer and, and think about an animal who's wired a thousand percent more wired and, and senses are way more alert than, than ours are. You know, they're just moving away from that sound that's coming at them. And a high-profile fletch that it takes for me to steer a fixed-blade fixed, or a fixed blade broadhead and shoot them accurately just creates a massive amount of noise. I mean, I had an elk one time, head down feeding. It was a pretty long shot. But I just remember watching this elk pick his head up. He he, he heard the arrow, spotted it, and dodged it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And I was shooting like 310 foot a second. I <laughs> mean, it was It was nuts. I mean, I was like, "Are you kidding?" I've never. That's an elk. They don't typically jump string, you know. But I've actually had a couple elk do that. Especially down in in one I had down in uh, Arizona one year did that. And he was looking at me, full alert. And uh, thank God I misjudged the yardage by five, shot over his back. (laughs) Because I would I would have gutted that thing, guaranteed. That's how much he moved, you know.
0: You know, when you talk about bow movement and uh, one of the best ways I've found to, uh, or excuse me, animal movement when it comes to a bow or fletching, um, a good way to do this or, and you know, if you have a lovely wife, like I have, I'll put her down behind a tree at 60 yards and shoot at an 80 yard target. And I do fletching and broadhead configurations. So, you know, when I'm, I'm dropping bombs and I don't tell her what it is, inevitably, one of those setups, she's going to poke her head out and be like, that was really fucking loud. Okay. Well, she's got no skin in the game, right? She's just listening. <laughs> so, um, right. The thing, you know, with that, and obviously if you do that, be safe, does the bow matter? I think close up the bow definitely matters with whitetail. farther distance. I don't think the bow, the bow noise matters. You can't hear it. And that's been tested and proven. And if you don't believe me, just go stand out at 50 yards. You can barely hear the bow go off if at all. So you know, close up, I I I don't know if I'm agreeing or disagreeing with Tim. Twenty yards, I think the bow noise matters a bit. Fletching though, fletching matters. Broadhead noise. You shoot a vented fixed blade broadhead, it is like a a Chinook coming in after you. I mean, it is loud. And so there, um, I I'm I'm, I'm going to hand this off to you, Tim. When you when you set up a bow, when you're talking about fletching configurations, because everybody asks me this. Three or four fletch, offset or helical? Um, Like, what do you, what is your general, not for tournaments, for hunting, general recommendation for what somebody should look at when they're setting up tuning a fixed blade or setting up, or not tuning, setting up an arrow for a fixed blade and setting up for a mechanical to steer that broadhead with the best possible scenario in every different application
1: all around? Well, for me, 100%. For me, 100% of the time, it's always four-fledged, and I'll tell you why. Grim Reaper's a mile from my house. Several years ago, they were over here at the house, and we were just putting together a test where we were trying to figure out what made a, what made a broad fall like a fill point um, or close to it. So my standard test for that is to put a quarter-inch left tear in the bow, and I put targets out. I think we had two 18 and ones out there um, at about 80 yards, and – I was getting ready to go hunting in Idaho at the same time where I had to use a fixed blade and I had pro hunters with four inch hard helical three fletch, four inch bang. At some point, every single broadhead I shot planed off and hit in the dirt at some point when I made a bad enough shot. And I'm just like, that sucks. And I saw a couple of things you know, one thing I saw that day was that a broadhead with an angled blade seemed to plane off it a little bit less. But in retrospect, after a few years later, I realized that I got lucky. And I think I had this twist ratio in the, in the, in the vein and the broadhead just right because I had tried it twice since with very negative results. I think you want straight blades in the front of the broadhead. You want the, you want the turning to be done only on one end. Okay. Otherwise you create a knuckleball effect where they're fighting each other. Okay. Well, so I got a little frustrated and I had some arrows in here that I had fletched up for, for ESPN great outdoor games. They were 22 series and I had them fletched with two and a half inch, four fletch kind of a medium parabolic two and a half inch. And I put inserts in them, put them together, tuned them up. And I mean, it was like an epiphany. It is. It was so like, it was so evident that, I just couldn't ignore it. And from that point forward, I've always used four-fletch. I I couldn't hardly make any broadhead miss a six-inch spot anymore. And so I thought, well, it's either the broadhead, it's either the veins or the arrows. So I fletched my arrows up the next day, refletched them all, and I'd actually fletched uh, half of them six-fletch because Jesse Moorhead was talking to me about shooting six-fletch at the time. So I said, oh, here's a good time to test it. And both setups, six-fletch and four-fletch, were were uh, remarkably better than that four inch hard vehicle. So in a 3 fletch So I've just ever since then ran 4 And I also seen it in my triple X's, you know, that I run for ASA. Anytime I've gotten away from 3 fletch or 4 fletch my bad shots just get penalized more. And that's the true a uh, definition of forgiveness because your good shots are always going to hit in the middle. It's just how far out do your bad shots. Uh, one thing I've also done shooting from the building out is learned that more vein actually groups better in the wind. So you can't shoot tiny little veins. When I go out and shoot feet with these little bitty arrows, and little bitty veins. Um, I tend to find better luck with heavier point weight in that regard because the point weight's the only thing left to give me any resistance, to what's happening when I make a bad shot okay because I don't have the vein I don't want the vein in a situation for noise so um, I tend to keep uh, you know the point weight I'll run a you know the, that broadhead I shoot has a tap back so I run a 20 grain gold tip back weight system in the back of the rod so my total front weights like 140 but I've shot those very successfully with just 120 it's kind of this give and take scenario. But I've always run four fletch. Um for me, Pixblade blade broadheads, I'm gonna go four Q two I Raptors or four uh of the fusion twos. It's a high profile four fletch. Um or any fixed blade. Four mechanical broadheads that have blades exposed like Sever, Kill Zone, Rage, I'm gonna go four probably their two point one uh Fusion X2, it's a lower profile two inch and when you get down to like a Bloodsport Night Fury that has just a little tip of a blade exposed, maybe a, a Schwacker, um, the Thorn Broadheads, uh, I go smaller. I go low profile, small, uh, usually they, may, they have a vein called a, a Fusion X2 SL, it's just a super low profile um, and I'll tend to go down to that because And sometimes I'll shoot, they have a a vein called a, uh, a Griff X, and that's a a more rounded back vein. And I find those to be the quietest that you can shoot. Okay. So I like that a lot for hunting. In fact, I kind of wish I would have put those on my hunting arrows uh, for this year, but I had them Jake Jacobson crest them up really nice for me. So they're done with the shield cuts. So the shield cut traps a little bit more in the air in the back, the rounded back vein, the air flows over the vein and just creates a little bit less noise. So that's kind of, you know, yeah, I'd do a 1.8 and a four fletch, uh, you know, for, you know, like a sever or like a, like a schwacker or a, uh, blood night Fury is kind of one of mine. I like, but, or the thorn broad edge, which is kind of my go-to. So
0: with what we're talking about here, um, you know, a lot of this, uh, longer, I mean, it matters at every distance, but like we, we, like last night we were, I had gotten, um, I was shooting AAE, uh, hybrid HPs, the higher profile 2.0s. I had 2.3s and 2.6s. Uh, you know, the 2.0 or excuse me, I had high profile 2.0s, low profile 2.0s, 2.3s, 2.6s. I was shooting an an, a, an Arizona Mini Max uh, fletching jig, which has an insane helical. And then I had a Bitsenberger offset, you know, out to, and I w- just want to put this into perspective. If you're not shooting super far, some of this stuff to me is kind of you know, whatever. It it, it it doesn't matter as, as much. But when you, when you know, and I get, and the only reason I'm bringing this up, I got this question a ton since we did this podcast Hey, man, shooting out to 50 yards, hunting whitetails. Most of my shots are within 30. I'm shooting brand X, broadhead. What vein? Four or three flitch? I don't know that it matters that much at that distance. I mean, Tim, I'm sure you've got your opinion.
1: I mean, it's like this. Forgiveness is about how far out your bad shots hit, okay? So if I put three blazers on a triple X and I go out and shoot them at 50 yards and I make perfect shots, they're all going in the middle, okay? But I'm here to tell you, the difference between three and four on a, on 50 shots is tremendous. It, it just is. I mean, so
0: let's, let's dive down. Let's dive down that just a little bit. So with, especially
1: if you're shaking, you know, at the moment <laughs> of truth, you need forgiveness.
0: So, so like right now I'm setting my wife up today with, um, her tournament arrows and I'm putting four, uh, 2.0 HP hybrids on there. Um, uh, offset, not helical. And with her hunting bow though, I actually have her one. It's easier to fletch. I have her with a okay. mass.
1: Okay. But before you keep going for people that don't know like me, what that vein is, you, I don't even know what it is. It, how, what is it? A high profile, low profile. Oh, sorry. Short? HP, I mean, it's two inches,
0: but HP, I'm sorry. High profile. Um, kind of a difference between so a like, inch... a... go ahead.
1: Yeah. So it's a two inch high profile.
0: Yes, that's correct. Um and you put that
1: on five target
0: Yeah, well we're we're screwing around with it. Um and so oh, okay. um what one one of the things with her I like her to see is the difference. You know, and it doesn't take me but a minute to fletch up nine arrows and three, three, three and three, right? Of of what's different. And sometimes it just might look good for her and that's what she wants to shoot, and I'm not gonna argue with that. It, it, you know, whatever, right? But when you are setting these up, what, what kind of my point was, and, and I'm 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 glad you kind of dove in there. When you are setting your arrows up, um, whether it be for hunting or, or target, I personally think that people, when, when they're doing this, um, they need to, if you're shooting a fixed blade, I do not believe you should be shooting a short vein. You need more vein on there. When you're shooting a tournament arrow, you don't need a long vein, you probably need a shorter vein. And it's all, you know. There
1: you got it, but- you have to define that because it it's all surface area right if i shoot a triple x that's a 27 it needs more surface area it needs more broadhead just like a fixed blade broadhead needs more height and control so does a large diameter so when you say target arrow that's a pretty broad well let me
0: let me let me let me you know finish what i was was going over and i think I'll, i'll circle back to where it'll cover what you're talking about when when you're and i say tournament arrow when I say a tournament arrow um, with with my wife, for example, a, a micro diameter with a relatively decent amount of point weight up front, nothing too crazy. Um, well, if let's say when you're when you're setting these up, if you shoot a two four six, a relatively to this day and age, a larger diameter arrow, it's not a fat shaft by any means, but if you shoot a a two four six and you're shooting a fixed blade broadhead, in comparison to you're shooting a micro in a mechanical if you ask me hey uh what vein should i use and you don't give me any of that info what's on the back of the end of the arrow changes dramatically like tim was just talking about if you're shooting a fat shaft or you are shooting a 23 series or whatever it has to what goes on the back of the arrow has to fit what the arrow is and is on the front and i don't know yeah. that i did a worth a shit job of explaining that but dive into that a little bit more we've talked about it some already yeah. but.
1: It's simply surface area. You know, and guys always want me to tell them the perfect vein. And if I do, I'm going to give you overkill. I'm not going to put you on the razor edge because I always tell you guys, it's not real smart to go watch the very best shot, shot executors you know, in the country and then pick your vein associated. Because I can put a, a 3 fletch blazer on Jesse Broadwater's arrow and a 4 fletch blazer, and he probably can't tell the difference. Whereas if you don't make as good a shot as he does, you can tell the difference. Okay, I never have felt like I was one of the greatest shot makers in the world. I, you know, I rely on a lot of English, right? So, <laughs> but uh, good way to so put I, it. I think I really, in my draw, like too, also has kind of uh, led me to discover, you know, most for, you know how to build the most forgiving setups because it's not easy to keep this power stroke in alignment. You know, it's it's not easy. You know, I'm, I'm a puncher, too, so I tend to have, shoot with a little bit more hand pressure than, and tension than does a guy that has a surprise you know shot. <laughs> Kyle kind of tell you the same thing. I mean, Kyle runs a lot of times more vein than I would run, even. Um,
0: I got the gist of you know, that. he's running
1: X-cutters, X for example, with a 2-inch a Q2i Fusion 2. That's a very high-profile shield-cut vein in four cause he tends to opt for forgiveness first. Okay. If, if you know, he's shooting a Pierce or if I was shooting your wife's micro diamond arrows, I'd tell you to put a 1.5 lower profile. show cut on it in a 4 fletch. because number one, her, her arrows are light. So her velocity degradation at range will be less. Okay. So she'll maintain her velocity. Her wind drift will be better because she'll have less uh, of a side profile to the wind. Um, so he's going to get a little bit better performance that way. So, and you, you want to start with what you think is the bare minimum and then kind of overkill. Cause you don't know what forgiveness is until you shot overkill. And then you can kind of back off from overkill to see where's the point I'm starting to lose here. And my rule of thumb is always shoot as much vein as you can up to the point you're losing something. It, and and, and you, you have, you have
0: to be willing to do that work. And and that's kind of when I what I, I always tell people air to the side of caution and I fell into the rabbit hole years ago. Remember back in the 2000 range when veins came out um, you know, super <laughs> anyway, you trying to shoot the smallest vein possible cuz it was the cool thing to do and get in a broadhead to tune and steer and everything else and you know, if you're not shooting far, throw a bigger vein on. It's I I, I don't I, you know, this is general Rules of thumb, like it, you know, err to the side of caution. If you have perfect no. form,
1: you can get away with more. Sorry, go ahead. Depends on, on the broadhead. Depends on. There's so many different factors. That's what I said. You have to. You know, I always look back at whitetails, and I'm not an expert on them. I've shot three or four, but you know, I, I look at one I shot two years ago up in Montana. He was fully alert, 32 yards, looking right at me, and I, I shot him with that thorn with that same vein combination he never even twitched before the arrow got there went all the way through him stuck in the ground at the launch angle and i was just like that was kind of the you know and i've shot i shot one last year and he wasn't he wasn't looking at me but he was still like on pins and needles at 30 yards it never even and people say these deer I and mean, he are dropping this and that Levi told me at the trade show this year, he said he started going to a smaller four fletch, you know, in his vein. And he said, man, I have to start aiming higher now. I said, they're not moving no more. Yeah, I I would agree with that. Boils boils down to the same thing. They, they moving away from that sound of that arrow coming at them. And, uh, so you want to try to, I think you want to try to limit that by your broadhead and your vein combination as much as possible.
0: And, and, before we confuse people any more than we already have, if you have the ability, no, what's that?
1: It's just information, right? The more, you know, the more you have to draw from, the more you've heard, the more you have to draw from, you know,
0: I would highly so suggest this.
1: go out and this. do their work. Yeah. <laughs> what?
0: That, that's what it, it didn't mean to interrupt, but you said the same thing I did. Go test it. A fletching jig is not that expensive. Um, veins you're going to save money building your own arrows anyway so
1: you know if everybody wants to just shoot my setups they're going to have good luck with it but i know i'm not going to convince everybody to do that but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well and, and with I everything wanted. we've talked about you and i aren't that much different and some of the stuff i copied off you anyway from 15 20 years ago but i, I have been, had really good luck with four fletch i don't um you know some of my recently because i've gotten lazy especially with a stick bow i've i started fletch with an aae mini max which has a huge helical it's not bad it works it's quicker but I, I mean last night i set up some super long distance arrows which were um x, they're super micro x impacts i put four hps they're sh- very short high profile veins um and i got a pretty decent amount of point weight decent amount of arrow weight up front it's for buck in the wind long distance i you know we were shooting um mechanicals i had uh severs on out to 100 yards and i can keep it yeah, around a paper plate at 100 pretty easily And with wind drift, Mm -hmm. not that bad. Not too much different than what you shoot, right? When I say not that bad, eight inches out the right with a pretty steady wind left to right. Eight inches is not that bad at 100 yards. 12 inches isn't that bad. I put a larger 246 arrow with three 2.6 with helical on there. uh, There was a significant difference in wind drift. And more than... Go ahead.
1: There's no doubt, yeah.
0: Well, we'll let, talk about that real quick before we go to the last part here because I don't want to keep you, you know, keep you on here all day. I don't think people realize how much wind drift um, or how much things affect wind drift, whether it be the arrow. The arrow is long, even a short draw, 27 inches, right? 20, 26, 27, 28-inch long arrow. Yeah,
1: well, let me cover one thing real quick. One thing you, when you're testing these vein combinations that you need to make sure you do is you need to make sure you take the variables out. Okay. variables, one thing I've seen over the years, a lot of people are not very good at taking variables out of tests. They make lots of assumptions, okay? And I don't like assumptions, okay? So when you go tune three different arrows in three different veins, you need to make sure every one of those has clearance and every one of those is shooting exactly the same through paper because if you're just, you know, Saying, "Hey, this one's better than this one," but you didn't take the time to tune each one of them arrows through paper. You could be getting some false data based on the fact, that, "Hey, maybe you got an arrow that's shooting a little bit of a you know left hair or right tear or something." You know, you got to take the variables out of the test. Okay, you have to test. You know, and what it does with a broadhead might be different than what it does with a with a fill point. I mean, as much as like I use bare match points for years to tune my arrows with kill zones because they were the closest thing I could find to the actual broadhead and the practice blade, I didn't really want to shoot it through paper because it just rips too much. You can't tell nothing. But when I started shooting these thorns where I can completely encapsulate the blade, I used the bare match points initially. I noticed that they weren't tuning the same and they're only a quarter inch difference in length. But that's partly because I'm pushing the spine so hard on the arrow. So it's just hard to, and you got to try as much as possible to take all the variables out of your test. You know, so that you know you're testing just the bow, Okay. Yeah.
0: And I'm, I am, um, I am really bad about mentioning that cause I always assume that's um, a given and you're right. It is. It's not a given. Yeah, Meaning-
1: it's not. I'm telling you, man, <laughs> just look at the thing I did last night. I took put four pounds of holding weight into my bow. It completely changed the tune of the bow because it changes the loading on the system and how it, how it recovers. And, it, I had to retune the arrows because dynamically they reacted differently. And, and, yeah. you, you guys, I mean, it's shorter lengths are not going to see this, but I can't like, I used to argue with Jim Burnworth all the time because he's, he's my size, right? And he's shooting on like 300 spine arrows at like 31 inches long. I'm like, dude, there is no way on God's green earth that those are stiff enough. And he would argue with me and he was shooting fixed blades all the time. But, you know, some people just can't talk to you, but, you know, I shoot an overdraw because I got a stiff in the mic. Like, I need to stiff in that arrow. Number one thing I can do for long draw guys over 31 inches, put a freaking overdraw. There's no negative to it. So, you know, get that rest back a little bit so you can shorten your arrows up. You know, the only reason, you know, I, I don't worry about the broadhead because, again, back to our previous conversation, my fingers sit down on a piece of tape on the front of my riser it's not going to be up in the sight window yeah so, I,
0: that kind of always throws me that always freaks me out actually I think I, has I, I missed the,
1: the whole answer to the, your exact question because i got off on a tangent so it,
0: it, it doesn't matter i mean the, the big thing that i want people to, to you know to understand is well one learn to do this on your own um you know one thing i wasn't bringing up variables I always shoot through paper with different fletching configurations, especially when I go to a low to a high profile. You can get vein contact real quick, not even know it. Um, you know, and, and, and the next thing is, is too, weighing out, like, what are you going to be doing? I don't think anybody should shoot a super low, pro, or excuse me, a super, super short vein if they're only shooting 30 to 40 yards. I mean, I don't know that it really is going to matter that much. and so you know,
1: well, sure. I mean, it depends. I mean, what are you shooting at? If you're shooting whitetails, the number one thing I'm looking at is noise reducing noise. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, it, for, so I would, I mean,
0: well, when I when I negatives
1: are not show up till distance, you know.
0: Well, when I say that, meaning I don't know that somebody should really focus on shooting a, the shortest vein possible that could be high profile. I don't know that that's going to be your answer. I think a lower-profile vein is going to be a better option. Shooting whitetail makes less uh,
1: noise. Sure. Higher-profile veins and softer veins create more noise. They create more flutter and more noise. You know, I look back at, you know, a guy named, uh, I put me on the spot, Jim Bath out of Manhattan, Kansas. This guy's killed a stack load of giant whitetails. I mean, 220s, 240s, 250s, huge bucks. You know what he shot them with? This is 25, at least 25 years ago. He shot them all with three L O fours. You know what a three L O four is? It's an ACC. Yeah. yeah. I, miss I think that. it's probably around a six or 700 spine. It's, it's a weak, 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 weak arrow. And he machined down rocket 75 grain rod heads. So he could glue them right in the end of them. So 25 years ago, he shoot 340 foot a second to do one thing keep him from jumping the string or the arrow, what have you. And if you said that to some of these guys nowadays, they would have a coronary because his arrow probably didn't weigh 300 grains. But
0: uh, I, I think what, in the pudding. I was just going to say, I think the the biggest, uh, and I don't want to, we're going to end up on archery talk, I'm sure over this podcast anyway, but when you, I okay yeah exactly um i can read about myself all day on uh, on there along you you and i you know at times are lumped together but when you um you look at like my my wife when she's you know relatively new bowhunter not new but you know three years but she's shot 30 40 animals already when i set her up i set her up for best case scenario in all circumstances right she's not dropping 80 yard bombs but You know, I want her to have the most stabilization with the quietest quietest arrow she can, or fletching configuration, with a relatively decent amount of penetration. So, I'm not having her shoot a 550 grain arrow like some people would suggest, because she doesn't need it. And you know how I know she doesn't need it? Because I've seen her put, fuck it, 30 30 animals on the ground. 30. That's more than a lot of people, right? And my wife just started bow hunting.
1: So... It's gotta be twice as many as most of the people that are saying you need to shoot a six hundred grain arrow.
0: Like on high momentum bow hunting, where you and I are fan favorites, um,
1: I we would. S- go <laughs> <around> we <there>. Yeah.
0: <laughs> My wife has killed a lot of different stuff, and anywhere from spot and spock mule, mule deer to tree stands, I set her up mm-hmm. with a three hundred and eighty grain arrow to a four ten. Just depends on what's tuning. We're screwing around, you know. She's not shooting over flat two hundred and forty feet per second. She's not screaming.
1: God, I'm. Man, you're screwing her. I'd
0: give her a much lighter than that. Well, when I I talked to you earlier, they're coming today. So (laughs) (laughs) believe me, again, I want her to have the best success she can. And I do not worry about my wife shooting a mechanical 1.5 like a sever at whitetails. Probably wouldn't have her shoot that at an elk, but I still think she'd probably be fine. But better to be safe than sorry. Not a lot of distance. So go ahead.
1: I agree. Yeah. So
0: in the end of the day, I want her to shoot as fast as she can with a good, decent penetrating arrow with the best, uh, most forgiving setup. It's really not that difficult. I think when people start reading everything online and drinking through a fire hose and reading, one guy saying you need to shoot a 550 at grain arrow that's never hunted out west that doesn't know what he's talking about anyway when it comes to that. Another guy saying one thing, another guy saying one thing. Just get the data from people that put animals on the ground that can shoot accurately and find the best case scenario for you. And it that kind of simplifies it as much as I can possibly simplify it. With everything Tim and I talked about, it's really not that difficult when you break it down. And, Tim, you and I aren't too far apart on our on – our, Thought process on this. When you set your wife up, are you setting her bow up saying, Jesus, I got to get her a 550 grain arrow because she's only shooting 45 pounds?
1: No nope, I target 100% of my setups are based around a desired speed. Okay. And that's really it. I don't want to shoot. I want to, I want my hunting bows to be 300 foot a second plus. Okay. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to get 300 foot a second. If I decide I have to pull more poundage fine. I'm kind of in a dilemma right now where I want to shoot my bowtech fast, but I don't know. I really want to, uh, pull the performance anymore on the cam because the performance is a little harsher draw force curve and the comfort just feels like butter. So, um, I have to make that choice, you know, uh, on my wife's setup, I still believe women benefit from speed. Okay. If I can get her to shoot a 300 grain arrow and it's, pushing 260, if I could get your wife to shoot, drop her down from 410 to 320 grain arrow, which I think is adequate with the right broadhead, um, she's going to pick up 25 foot a second. Now she's going to be shooting 265 instead of 240 because yardage is still the number one problem we have bow hunting, even if you got a rangefinder. I mean, if you're willing to take the time and create that controlled environment where you absolutely 100% unequivocally know the distance, then yeah, that's fine. But the reality is when we're spotting and stalking, you know, you're probably over her shoulder telling her how far it is every time. Yeah. You know, when she's spotting and stalking, and you and I don't necessarily have that luxury. It's a heck of a lot easier when somebody's doing that. I promise you. Yes. You know, I love it. When a guy's over my shoulder saying 81, 84, 88, <laughs> yeah. but usually it's 81, move your sight, shit, he moved. Um, you know, it's, speed benefits you in that situation. The same reason it benefits me when I shoot unknown yardage. I mean, I tell these guys in unknown yardage, the only thing unknown yardage teaches me is how much I need a range finder. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's just, well, I mean.
0: You, I, I'm disagreeing and agreeing with you all at the same time when you're talking about yardage is the number one problem. I agree, but I just hitting the animal for whatever reason, I, I am, well, am. Okay. But
1: yeah, <laughs> but I'm saying damn straight penetration.
0: No, no. And, and I get it. I mean, I, I've been on the trad side of the fence. I shot a heavier arrow, didn't have technology behind me. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got a mm. wife that I hunt with and, you know, I, I want her to have the best scenario. And the, the thing is, is I've never seen somebody hit an animal, um, that, uh, I, well, I say it's someone, I have never walked uh, out of the mountains saying, man, I wish my arrow was heavier. I have definitely walked off the mountain saying, oh, man, I should have worked on judging yardage or, oh, man, my peep alignment was horrible or, man, I shit the bed and punch. You know, a lot of other things, but very rarely do many people ever say, I wish I had an heavier arrow. When you get down to the root of it and take ego out of it and all the bullshit that you read online, you didn't hit what the fuck Mm -hmm. you were aiming at. If you hit well, it in the that's lungs, it would problem. What's that?
1: <laughs> that's usually the biggest problem, and then you have to assess why didn't they hit? Why I'm aiming at? That's why I went back to my very first comment in this uh, segment was basically the rangefinder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you're when you set up that 37 degree slope shot, I said your rangefinder is going to be your biggest problem.
0: <laughs> well, let's uh, let's skip the air, uh, the sight leveling because Tim, you've got videos out on that, don't you?
1: Yeah. I mean, probably the best, if you guys want to go look at it, just look up, go, uh, Tim Gillingham next level archery. Those videos I did for them, I think are, are straight to the point. Okay. And Hampsey has some good videos that you can search too, but the, the next level ones are ones we did kind of, you know, how it is the first time you teach something, you know, you, you just refine it as you teach it. You know, you, you make it simpler and easier to understand. Yeah. And, you know they they had me using a you know one of the things that you know the amps committee has me using a, a level on the riser and I don't I don't like to teach stuff that's not important cuz it doesn't matter mm-hmm. and that's where you so were making I don't wanna,
0: you were making fun of me about
1: that <laughs> well yeah It's irrelevant.
0: well no it's important cuz a lot of people listened in like me using a BrightSight pro tuner and I want to make sure people understand this and Kyle brought up a good point you made it you know I'm doing it twice What my point was, is if I can get someone, I hate to put it this way, it's not overly easy to have someone draw a bow back over and over that's having trouble lining the plumb bob up. And so when I use a, a bright side, it just gets me closer, so I don't have to adjust it as much, but you don't need it. I will agree with that 100%. It just gets me, I can get it closer, so when I put it on the bow and we use the ham ski, I got less adjustment to do. But- before you make fun of me, let's get on to the uh, uh, rangefinder angle comp. Be- because uh, you and I have talked about this more than anyone I know. You for tournament archery and hunting, me for those steep angles in the Davis Mountains. We've had up to fifty-nine degree angles. Um, I have probably pissed off a lot of companies that make rangefinders. I did a video showing um, when you have a well, and Tim, you know this. A 170-yard target at a 47-degree angle. The standard rangefinder at that distance, after the cut, the how standard... Far? 107 yards. Oh,
1: if they said 170, like, how the hell do
0: you even reach that? Yeah, no, no. 100, 107. <laughs> and this is... These are realistic shots that we face in the Davis Mountains all the time. 107, and it was a 47-degree angle. The average... The closest rangefinder... After angle comp, meaning I had an angle compensation range finder, was 13 yards off. 13, after the cut.
1: No doubt.
0: <laughs> and and so, you know, back in the day, and Tim uh, is a little bit older than I am, back in the day, I had a clinometer glued to the side of my range finder and a cut chart. Well, things got a little bit better, and then I quickly learned, and you and I talked about this for the last 20 years or 15 you still have to deduct past 20, 22 degrees, 65, 70 yards. It, it, it's off more and more, and, and even worse when they're yeah. both combined.
1: Yeah, you just got to have data, you know. And, and if you're going to shoot and you know you're going sheep hunting, and, you know, Levi is going all sheep hunting, I kinda, kind of told him, I was like, look, you might want to look into this because your range finder's is going to be off. So I kind of gave him a cut chart that I did, and I said, just go, this is my data probably not going to be perfect for you, but it's going to get you closer. So, you know, I kind of did the same thing with you and Mendoza.
0: Obviously well, you'd already, listen, so. you you did it with me 10 years before with Phil. I had told Phil, and I don't think he believed me. I You had told me that yeah. 10 years prior, or a long time prior. <laughs> yeah. And the thing that when people ask me, how do you make a cut chart, from what I have seen, and I, I am definitely not Tim and I'm not an electrical engineer or a mathematician, everyone's cut chart's going uh-huh. to be a little bit different. I, I, exact. I cannot hand someone my cut chart, but what I can do is give you enough info to make your own, but you're going to have to shoot it in, b- b- what I call shoot right. it in. And so for right. me, if I have a cut chart, my cut chart isn't 4,000 numbers. It's not a ton of different shit on there. It's a basis five-yard increment cut chart for me in five-degree because I'm going to wing it. I
1: I simplify it even more. Okay. I I do. I simplify it even more. I do every 10, every 10 degrees and every uh, sometimes 20 yards. Go ahead and tell me how you do yours, and I'll
0: yeah. tell you how to do it. Well, well no, no, I I, uh, I, agree with you. I mean, my cut chart's are rise and run, basically. When I say that, I mean, I've got distance and I've got angle. And I have got five-yard increments. And and probably mine's uh, easier to read than yours. You go, you know, bigger dimensionality. I'm not shooting as far as you. Mine's inside of 100. Yours was probably stretched well, out my, a bit.
1: My point is, is, I remember standing up here on the Wasatch front with a cut chart. Arches events, cut chart, printed off. I got a deer, a giant buck, 195, 200 inch buck standing at a hundred. I think it was 105 at 12 degrees or something. And I looked at that chart and then my numbers fell between the angle and between the number. And I'm just, I just had brain lock. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, well, how can I do this where it's faster and more efficient. Okay. Well, the one thing I come up against was none of these freaking rangefinders give me the stuff I need, which is what's the straight line distance, what's the cut, and I want the angle in the viewfinder so that I can make the adjustments. Okay. So even programs like Archer's Advantage. Like you said, when you get those extreme cuts, and I learned this stuff training for European Pro Series, I learned more for hunting that application than I've ever learned for anything. Training for European Pro Series because I'd always use an Arch Advantage cut chart at reading, and it was fine. Well, the slopes aren't evil, you know. I shot my doll sheep at a 55 degree slope at 46 yards, and this was just an angle meter and a cut chart. I shot him for. I think, 23 yards. In retrospect, I probably should have shot him for 20. How many guys could cut 26 yards off the freaking side?
0: Uh, I can now, like but it's far, very, very difficult to believe well, at yeah. first.
1: <laughs> but, you know, you know, when I did my testing, I went out and I found this, this hill that was 40 degrees, 70 yards, and, dude, I dumped four arrows over the top of the target <laughs> yeah. before I hit it. And I'm like, holy shit. And turned out that that... Cosine rangefinder was four yards high on the downhill and I had to add four yards on the uphill. So then I started using archers. So when I started doing my charts and stuff, I I put archers advantage cut in there. Well they were still a yard and a half off. Well a yard and a half is not a good shot at that far you were talking about. Okay. So I had to really get down and dirty as to how I was going to get my, my cut. So I basically went south of town here and spent, a hundred freaking hours walking up and down a hill with a, top, a target at the top and the bottom. And when I finally it took me about two to three years to get it refined. So what I would do is I would just take a hill that was say 35 degrees on average. And I had to have one common out, which was the distance I could control the straight line of sight distance. Okay. So I would have one rangefinder with line of sight and one with an angle compensation and I would write down what the angle compensation told me to shoot it for, what the actual site was, or line of sight was, and then I would shoot it in, and then I'd write down what it shot at. Then I'd go extrapolate all the data out, and I would say, okay, archers advantage said this, the error on archers advantage is this much. Okay, So then I'd have these charts with all this information I could use in a tournament, but even in a tournament would take me forever. So for hunting, what I ended up doing is I would just simply – Either take the straight line distance, or I would take. Usually, the best way to do it was take a line of sight rangefinder um, that gave you the either the cosine cut, or you have the new RX five from Leupold that gives you an archer's advantage cut. The problem I ran into with the 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 the, uh, the Leupold RX five was is here I am getting my line of sight distance with one rangefinder, and it's a half a ER yard difference or four tenths difference at straight line of sight with the the other range finder and the angles are both two degrees off. So you're like, Shit, I'm not getting the right data. So, um, we I've kind of offered them, you know, I, I work for Vista outdoors and Bushnell is one of our companies and they got some smart guys over there. Um, sometimes these corporate companies don't allow their talent to work like they should. And so finally they, they hit me up on doing a project and, you know, I just basically threw a bunch of questions at them. You know, like, hey, why, why can't we range more accurately? Amica has a disto tape measure you can range within a quarter freaking inch, but yet we get a yard. I mean, what's what's the deal? Um, so I basically just laid some parameters out, and I and and the idea was just to build this perfect rangefinder. I said, well, first of all, you got to build a rangefinder that number one ranges accurately. It's got a range of steel tape, it's got a range of black, a brown, and a white target accurately in the same. All I had to do is tell them what to build in 25 days. They had it. I mean, it was crazy how fast I, I was, was not expecting that. <laughs> one of the beautiful things about this new Bushnell broadhead rangefinder is several things I like about it. Number one, I'll put my reputation on. I told them not to screw me <laughs> because everyone I've tested has been spot on. And I mean spot on to the point that I'll tell you black was four inches off. That's how hot tight I tested it. So a black target would be four inches off a white and a brown. The brown and the white were exactly the same, but four inches is pretty much irrelevant in archery. Um, so it has a viewfinder that allows you to get the, the line, the straight line distance, Right underneath it is the cut, and then the angle is up in the upper left corner of the viewfinder. So now I have all the information in one rangefinder that I need to make my cut charts and make my adjustments to my, you know, on my my cut chart that I usually wear on an arm guard. Um, It also has a, one of the coolest features about this rangefinder, and they've had this before, was a, it's a, a, you notice in, in low light, how you look through a rangefinder, it's got like a red reticle, you either got a red reticle or a black reticle the black one you can't see it and the red one is so bright that you can't see past it well this new uh, reticle that, that Bush now has in this, this rangefinder you can actually see past it it changes with the light and it's really cool got a real fast processor so if you're you know some rangefinders you get up there and in the moment of truth you're shaking a little bit and you you can't you know get the same reading twice I mean I had some like a uh, geopit. I mean, I, if you moved when you ranged them, it had three yards. And I, I shot an elk in the, I, I shot an elk high one time up in Idaho because of that. Cause I took one range reading and what it did. And so, you know, the, the, the quickness of the processor is a big deal. Okay. So, you know, they decided to bring this rangefinder out and then we'll start working on hopefully, you know, the Holy grail, which what I envision is something like a test drill where you can actually true it. To, to the person's ballistic curve. Because even Arch's advantage with all the, the formulas and crap Perry's got, he cannot get the cuts perfect. He can't get a sight tape perfect to a chronograph. I mean, I don't know why. I'm not. I, I, I'm, a, I'm an engineer that hates math, you know. I mean, I, I got lots of good ideas. I just don't know how to put an equation to it, you know. I don't know why. It's that's somebody else's gig, you know, that's smart like Brian Litz or, you know. The bullets are no different the top level guys still have to true their data. They got to true their cuts. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not like this perfect science, you know? And if you ever read, you know, Brian Litz's applied ballistic books, you realize how deep this guy takes this stuff and it's, it's pretty overwhelming really. Um, so when I do my cut charts, when I have this data, what I end up doing, is taking that range that's in cut mode on the deer or, or whatever. And I decide once I've shot that in at 120, 100, 80, 60, 50 or 60. I usually do for tournament use 60, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. Um, but for hunting, I would just, if I was going out to do my hunting though, I would just do, as far as I could get, which is very difficult to get steep slopes past 35 degrees and long distance because you just can't find them. To shoot a 40 degree slope at 120 yards would be pretty hard to find. Um,
0: We've got them all day in the Davis
1: mountains. (laughs) So you just extrapolate the status. So I got 120. So I I want a commonality. So I got a, a 35 degree slope, uh, if you can do them in, in, if you can find the slopes in even fives, that's great. You can do a 35, a 30, a 25, a 20, and a 15. Pretty much anything under 15 is going to be pretty much spot on the cosine cut. You know, very, very little off. Maybe at far distance you might have to check it. But then what I'll do is I will just give a percentage error, okay? So if, for example... 35 degree slope, 120 yards, my range finder is 1% off. Then I can simply say I can range the target at 120 and it's telling me, uh, uh, let's just say 96. 1% of 96 is what? 0.96, one more yard off and I'm good. Right? So it's fast. So I have this chart sitting here that's, that's, 45, uh, 40, or I might even just go 10, 20, 30, and 40 degrees. And all I need to do is see the graduation in that. Cause if I fall between the two and one is 2% and one is 3%, I cut 2.5%. You follow me?
0: Yeah, well you do the same thing I do. So yeah, I definitely follow you.
1: Yeah, I do percentages rather than actual cut charts. Yeah. So whatever the rangefinder area is in the cut, I adjust off of that in a percentage. So it's fast. Cause I can figure 2% of 88 or 2% of 83 or, you know, 2.5% of a hundred is another two and a half yards or 90 is two and a half percent is uh, 1.8 uh, approximately two more yards cut, you know, close enough. I'm within a half a yard. That's good. You know, for a kill shot. So, it just allows me to make that decision a whole lot faster, and I and I usually laminate it and put it in an in a you know in an arm guard or something very you know easy to see and find.
0: So one of the yeah, and you don't do too much. I mean, I do basically the same thing you do. the 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 thing I would want to get across uh, on this before we take I don't take too much of your time is what What my suggestion would be is first choose if you want to use um you know actual distance and then have a range finder that shows you the angle and make your cut chart off that or the range finder you have deduct off of the deduction it's already made so choose that first and then i cannot give you your i cannot tell you how to make a cut chart from your living room i can get you close kind of you've got to go out there and shoot it in
1: you know print off an archer's advantage cut chart that's going to get you the closest
0: so it well that's my but my,
1: that's not
0: my my next thing is what's that well i was going to say that's <laughs> my next thing with what i do uh is i and i think it's about the same thing you do with archer's advantage when they print out your cut chart that's going to be different pretty much guaranteed than your range finder what i have found um by a pretty good amount at certain angles and distances Your cut chart is going to be based between those things. So when I say based, if Archer's Advantage says to, you know, deduct X amount on a 47-yard shot at a 39-degree angle, you are going to want to, you know, marry that up to what your range finder says, and then you're going to need to find out what it actually is. That's what I do. It sounds like you do the same thing.
1: Well, you know what I use Archer's Advantage for? I use it to get me on target. Well, as I was okay. to say,
0: not miss the bag is what I use it for. But yeah,
1: <laughs> right. And I try to use a big target. I use the um, oh, what the hell's the name of them targets? The ones with the yellow square center and a big black outside. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, I, think, or, I think I think I do. they're made in Michigan. I, I like that target a lot. And typically, when I'm doing cuts, I. I take a level and I put a a white line across there and I typically take a piece of like signboard and I, and I take a level and I put a, a uh, like one of the, just a nail on each side, ripping nail. Yeah. Yeah. And I will level that because I don't want to concern myself with left and right and all this crap. All I'm trying to do is get the vertical drop (laughs) and I know whether I fired on top of the line, in the middle of the line, or below the line. And when you start trying to shoot uphill shots at thirty five degrees, well, it's gonna take a while. It takes me three times as long to shoot an uphill <laughs> slope in as it does a downhill. <laughs> and it's a lot of damn walking. But if if you value the data, if you're spending twenty five grand to go on a sheep hunt or you're coming out out west here, even Kodiak Island for deer, man. I there's some pretty extreme angles I shoot deer on there. Um, but 35 degrees is not an uncommon thing that you see, and that's a tricky, tricky shot.
0: Well, and 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 with pe- Our- you know, people listening in with what Tim says, and 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 some of what I'm saying is there's no free, there's no magic bullet, and there's no free ride. You're going to have to go out there and do the work to get this perf- perfect. And and Tim, you brought up Mendoza. We were on a sheep hunt. Uh, Tim laid an amazing group over the back of a sheep after the angle comp of his rangefinder. And I told him, and you definitely told him, you got to deduct more. And in some cases with not super steep or not super long distance angles, I can tell somebody put your 50 at its heart knowing he'll hit it. It is not exact, but at least I know he's going to put a hole through the lungs with what tim's talking about which i'm right. not quite as animal as he is i don't level it out i i use a black piece of tape i use it's two inches tall for longer distances um i'm getting old don't see as well gorilla tape and i tape that sure. perfectly across the bag and i use this giant mckenzie delta speed bag thing it's huge and when i lay that across up a hill. well i'm strong tim i'm good um the, uh, <laughs> he's got a point because some of these angles I'm shooting does suck. But when I go throw that thing down at a 36 degree angle at 70 yards, it's pretty simple. I have archer's advantage. I have what my rangefinder says, and then I shoot that. And then I figure mm-hmm. out right there, how much it's off. And then that's how I make my cut chart in a, in a very layman's perspective at multiple angles yeah, I, and I, I, you kind of round it around.
1: Yeah, for the lack of confusion, I would use the cut chart if you're just don't want to use the arch advantage cut chart if you don't want to take the time to go shoot them in or, or, or you don't have time. It's going to get you the closest or get the RX-5 rangefinder, It's going to get you the closest, but it's still not right. And when you get past 25 degrees, 60 yards, that's where you're going to pay.
0: And, and it's okay. not the RX, it, it's the, the full draw
1: yeah the, the, yeah, I don't know what it is, but you know the, the, the plan is is to try to build one that is perfect you know and that that is trueable you know trueable to the ballistic curve because it's the ballistic curve. I stand right next to Luke, for example, he's shooting ultra at 295 and I'm shooting pierces At some point in our ballistic curve our data matches. but his arrow has a little bit different curve than mine does so, there are times he's, you know, he's a yard off from where I'm at. Well, we all know what a yard at 80 yards is. It's a miss. It's really bad, it's really bad at 260 foot a second. It's <laughs> At 305 foot a second, it's still, you know, three or four inches or five.
0: Yeah, I was going to say at 280, it's eight inches. Uh, 280 feet per yeah. second, guaranteed, because I've no, done, done no. it. A, a yard at my my 30. speed
1: is, is, is eight inches. Yeah, so I'm I'm a, I shoot faster because I want to tighten that window of my mistake. <laughs> yeah. If I make a little cut mistake, if I make a little yardage mistake, the animal moves. I arrange something next to him and said, "Tim, I want the speed for that reason."
0: And the other thing people so. probably aren't looking at is your kill. Uh, no different than a 3D target, your um, size of kill zone is changing dramatically. The steeper you go. Um, Oh yeah. And, and people don't think of that easier. What you had for an eight inch high kill zone parallel is cut to four at a forty five degree angle. Roughly. That's not exact, but you get the point. You're you you do not have as much shit so to if, hit.
1: So if you shoot a two and a half inch mechanical, you just open your kill zone up to six.
0: No, and I that's one of the things I've been trying <laughs> like with you know, I'd shoot a two but I mean the same same thing is like when when people are figuring this this out, you have got to put in the work. Um, I highly suggest everyone to get uh, archer's advantage. Um, I really like not. I know Tim, you like the Bushnell, but that full draw five, and you need to get out there, get a big bag target. That well, Tim, Tim makes a good point not to have a heart attack packing it around.
1: Well, and you got to be you got to test these range fires, dude. I mean, <laughs> I, I got one that if I aim at the if I aim at the animal it shoots over the top, you know, I got one that, you know, this is the problem. And, and I'll just tell you this first brought it is the finest most accurate range finder I've ever used. It still cuts cosine. Okay. But the difference is that now I have one range finder that gives me everything that I need. Okay. It gives me the straight line. And I really honestly don't need the straight line other than just my references you know, when I'm doing, when I'm figuring out my data, I want the exact distance. I don't want, you know. And it was funny, like, when when Leupold come out with RX1000i, man, I had, like, three or four of them, and they were exact. And just, I don't know why, but it just seems like it's slowly, the 1,200 dude, come out, it was two or three-tenths off, I, and I've, I get one that's this and that. and, and I Let me interrupt, I like dude, because in I,
0: I need to I'll make look, sure people yeah. understand this. This morning, we have uh, probably 10 rangefinders in my garage. I had four full-draw fours and fives. What would you guess, Tim, knowing what you're talking about, those three were different at 100 yards. What would you guess the variance was in in those rangefinders?
1: Probably two yards.
0: Yeah, 2.1. That is a lot at 100 yards.
1: At 60 yards. I was at an NRL 22 shoot. In Northern Utah a month in, or two, well, a couple months ago. And we got this target. Like, there's two black targets out there at, at 400. And so who the hell even knows how far they were to be honest with you. My buddy's over there with a like a it on a tripod and he's ranging them. I've got this new bush now that I know I've tested on black and brown targets, but I also know that it's formulated just for archery yardage, primarily for archery yardages. It will still range distances, but the laser, uh, Beam width is designed more for accuracy for archery purposes. So I don't know whether mine's actually reading right. We got a guy with a SIG, we got a guy with this, and a guy with that. And I swear to God, we had 60 yards difference. It was ridiculous. <laughs> it was like, all right, I'll just start slinging boats down there and hopefully I hit something. And, you know, of course, my buddy with the freaking Leica, he missed every one of them. So I don't know whether it was his 22 at 400 yards or if it was actually, it wasn't giving him the right range either. So nobody really even knows. Well, and that's the until problem. You verified,
0: yeah, yeah, verifying. Until it. you
1: verify it on a steel tape, I don't trust any of them.
0: So, so the, the thing is. The first thing
1: I do when I get a new range is I lay my 100-yard yeah. steel tape out and I put a black target, a brown target, and a white target up, and I make a chart, and anything within two-tenths is a zero the first year I shot little those, those RX 1000 eyes were all zero. And again, it's, and, and even they still, I still find that they range very consistently on different color targets, but I don't know why but some of them are two tenths difference or four tenths or three tenths. And I think that's just pure quality control. And I told, you know, when I worked with Bushnell on this. I told him, I like, look, don't make me look bad. You guys, you know, how do we control the fact that every one of these, goes out the door does exactly the same thing and it's just an extra step of calibration is all it is.
0: and and here is the problem and and if you can't do what tim's talking about even though you should you need to at least pick one rangefinder and only go off of that and i made that mistake last night right. i'm shooting out the top at 20 30 40 you know whatever and i'm like what the hell is going on am i creeping am i am i coming out of the top anyway well it wasn't my range finder well i'm like what the hell they were 2.1 yards off from one to and and i guarantee you know 20
1: go ahead i had a range finder one time it was weird it was like right at 30 yards it was off three yards it was just like a (laughs) weird spot in the range finder and it's funny i talked to some other people had the same range finder and uh theirs were exactly the same it's just you know like i I tell you the problem in every company with every product is somebody high enough's got to care enough and that's it period you got care enough to, to make sure the quality control and what the product you're putting out there is quality and, and, it, and, it, and you have to know what the customer expects. Cause when Bushnell first come at me at this range fire, it's like, Hey, is plus closer half a half yard. Good enough. I'm like, hell no. That's not good enough. Well, they don't know. They, they're not really top level archers. They deal with average bow hunters and their rifle shooters. So yeah, that's funny. Good. You know, Well, and and when you're, when you're looking at that, go ahead. ahead. No, no, you're good. A lot of his product information are dumbed down to the, the, you know, the 30 yard white tail bow hunter, because that's all it takes to have good success in that venue. When you come out West, when you go sheep hunting, when you deal with longer and, and further and, and different conditions, then you have to really start paying attention to detail. You know, it's like these PRS guys and, and the king of the two mile guys, and you know, with rifles, they, they, thats a different animal. Different nut they have to crack, you know.
0: Yeah. No, it's true, and and, and that's it,
1: where a lot of that is going to be the deciding factor.
0: Yeah. No, for for sure. Um, well, and uh, again, I mean, I'm
1: sure they can do it. I, I'm sure they can do it. Hell, they can put missiles in a freaking window. at, god only knows how many miles so i'm sure it's, there's equation that allows you to do it it's just again nobody somebody high enough don't care enough yet
0: <laughs> yeah i was just gonna say somebody's gonna have to care and you're you're right and i think probably the first time one of the higher ups goes on a hunt and hopefully he has a super steep angle and blows over the back of a 170 inch doll or a 200 inch mule deer he'll start to care more because you know as a guide or a hunter it's a little bit you know, disconcerting when I creep over and I range and I'm like 53, maybe. Cause I, you know what I mean? Unless I've got the cut chart and everything else I'm deducting off of, um, you know, I'm, I'm going off without a cut chart. I'm making a redneck guess of my, you know, previous experiences after the cut. And if it's with the cut, you're just not going to hit the animal. Um, you know, if it's super steep or super yeah. far, you're just going to miss it. So,
1: well, you can kind of like, you can kind of, Honestly, you could probably just use your cut chart on him, and just you'd be closer than anything. Um, it just it just try, try, try to you know if you have a two eighty setup, a two ninety setup, a 300 and 310 setup. If you're a guide and you want to get this data, you know, then you get a guy who shows up at camp with a two fifty or sixty, then you got an issue. But um, but you're going to be pretty damn close because those ballistic curves for two eighty, no matter what setups. Going to be pretty similar, um, but when we're at OPA and we're trying to hit, you know, a one-inch freaking twelve ring, I got to have a crap together. You know, I'm not at that point at that distance. I'm not really trying to hit that, but I'm just, you know, you got to have your ducks in a row, man. I mean, you got to, and like you said, when you start getting steep, the kills don't get smaller too. So, I mean, you really gotta. Most people just take that shot and they miss, and they're like, "Man, I must have missed." Hmm. They don't really know why. Yeah, because and they trust that rangefinder as a technological piece of of uh, equipment that I can't be it. It's, it's, you know, that's built by scientists, smart people. Yeah. Well, you know,
0: they're not smart boaters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I think again, whatever people listening in, hopefully you guys have and gals have at least a decent idea of where to go from here and and if you're missing high on steep angles why and how to how to correct it um but uh, man we've been on for like 2 hours and 10 minutes i probably shouldn't take up any more of your morning and i got to go build my wife's arrows so
1: oh it's fun i got i am getting ready to go to ASA tomorrow i just got to go finish checking the sight on this bow and maybe shoot a few targets pack the gear up and you know that's about the story of my life. It's been seven in a row, so it's been a rough stretch.
0: <laughs> well man, good good luck. You've been crushing it this year. Well, you've been crushing it for a while, but you've been whooping I think you what you only lost one this year, haven't you? too?
1: Well, I've lost I've lost one out of the last six. I, yeah. I don't keep track, you know, it's just I oh there's a Kenny Rogers song about that, right? never count your money to yeah. sit <laughs> at <laughs> the table to pay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh it's on the archery retirement program win or don't <laughs> <yeah>.
0: <laughs> oh shit uh that's funny well man good good luck at the tournament and uh, i'm sure we'll have to do another one of these in a couple months because we'll have four million more questions but i appreciate all the info and hopping uh, on here
1: it's always fun. You know, people nowadays can, can learn so much faster because there's so much more information out there. Back when, you know, we were learning, you know, there really wasn't a lot out there. Um, it really wasn't, uh, you know, and, and learning stuff the hard way is the best way to remember it, you know, and hopefully I can get my head around getting a project. I got a project I want to do, you know, to kind of pass all this information down. And so people have it to learn, t- you know, going forward and they can empower themselves to, you know, to learn how to do all this technical work and technical, technical bulwark's tough to explain, you know, how to tweak holding weights and how to, you know, do this, some of this stuff, you know, and you're going to learn it by inundating yourself into competitive shooting. You know, if I want to learn how to shoot my air rifle better, I'm going to go to an air rifle event, and get my ass kicked the first year or two until, I run into some people. I want to get a big shout out to my buddy, Dusty Powers. He won, he won the Rocky Mountain gun Challenge this weekend.
0: Oh, that's awesome.
1: And, uh, 20 freaking grand. Yeah.
0: Yeah. For an gun, that's badass.
1: You know, and I, I, I helped him a little bit along the way, you know, he got his first gun just some of the stuff that I've learned and I pack it the same way I do archery, you know, it's not working. What can I do to fix it? You know? And, uh, it's just fun to, to me, it's fun to learn. Sucks failing, but it's fun to learn. (laughs) There's a 200 inch seven by nine up the Canyon here that I shot through the top of the back with, with my cut chart on my forearm because I trusted that cosine rangefinder, and uh, I didn't trust it. I just went with it, put it that way. And, he got a gouge through the top of his back.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that'll help you, you remember. Know? It's like talk, touching a hot stove. You're not going to forget that one.
1: And I'm I sure in your interview interview with Kyle, you know, he probably talked some of the same stuff. And you know, Kyle didn't have to learn that now. So he's just kind of listened to what I told him, and he shot some ser- pretty extreme shots on animals and just stuffed them. You know, with that with that knowledge, of course, you know, get ready for OPA and things like that. He knew enough, you know, from my experience to go out and just check the stuff himself. And, you know, he had a pretty good idea, you know, what he needed to do. He doesn't seem to take it to the, to the finite detail that I do, but I kind of want the data too. you know, I want the data to be correct. I don't want to straight line distance a target with one range finder. That's a half yard off the one I'm freaking doing the cut with, because I've just created a half yard error in there that pisses me off. It's like, it's like, it's not, finite data at that point okay my curve kind of looks like a little bit lumpy you know
0: yeah yeah no it makes that makes total sense
1: but anyway i'll uh let you get after it and i probably better get after it too so
0: all right right on man i really appreciate it good luck at the shoot and uh yeah i'll bug you later thank you
1: all right no problem (laughs) you too see you